Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. And welcome back to Flower Politic Podcast. It's the 3rd of March, year of our Lord, 2020. And by your lead-in, wow, your humble host got lucky last night. Big time lucky. Went to bed at 9, uh, tornadoes to the north. Uh, those that know, I live somewhere around Fort Campbell, Kentucky. It is my bunker, so I can't give out that location. But um, Hopkinsville, Clifton got hit by a tornado and... We went to bed in our usual way with our evacuation plan to the basement, telling the wife, you're not bringing all the animals, you got to save yourself, and I had the weather radio on. Um, I have a good UHF handheld that I keep with me. And long story short, uh, yeah, wake up this morning, we did not get a single drop of rain, no lightning, no nothing really around our area, and that was Nashville, Tennessee. Long track tornado as of the latest news, uh, something like eight people killed. I-40 is closed, which I never thought I'd say that. 
but six semi-trailers got sucked up by it and flipped over into the westbound lane. This was shooting debris 20,000 feet in the sky and dumping trees five miles away. So prayers go out to all those poor people. Um, that is the worst tornadoes. Anybody's lived in the tornado alley, which I did back in the 80s, um, or in this area, it's nighttime. That is the time that just you don't want to be hit by a tornado. It, it, you can't see it. And the videos I played were on Twitter. Um, you can literally see it when the lightning struck. It was a big, it was about a third of a mile to a half mile base. Uh, There's one video of a guy who should have been inside his storm bunker coming about a half a mile away from him. And it is huge. The base was gigantic. Um, but it moved quickly. But it was bouncing. So it would bounce in, bounce out. The damage is just unbelievable. Uh, downtown Nashville, Germantown area, just destroyed. So uh, God be with those that have lost their families. It's just, you know, we've been here since the 90s. Uh, worst one was in Clarksville. Uh, my wife got stranded in our Hyundai Elantra uh, in a field because one hit two days prior to the big one. We were getting these round of storms, and some nice guy just pulled up, never talked to her, hooked up the car, pulled it out on the highway, and said, there you go, ma'am, and went away. It was a really nice guy, but that's our area, just good people. Um, if you look at downtown Nashville now, there's all sorts of people there helping. None of them live there. It is what the South is and why I live here. Um, people will give the shirt off their backs, but um, the next, you know, two days later, huge long track just destroyed downtown most of the businesses never came back because it was just destroyed. Um, hell, my favorite guitar shop, because I played guitar during that time, just they never came back. Their building literally pancaked. It was an old brick building. So uh, we've been lucky with the tornadoes. But, um, you know, we're, we're built on a side of a hill, and if the shit hits a fan, we can come in our basement and... We can survive a, you know, main strike tornado. We we could survive it. It's going to shear off our house, um, but we'll live and build again. And I think that's what a lot of people are going to have to do now because it's it hit residential, it hit downtown. This this tornado did not discriminate. So prayers go out to those people. I'd be remiss if I didn't start my show with that because even though you don't live in this area. Um, it is a local thing that's gigantic. It's all over the news. It's on the Weather Channel. Um, I called all my family so they wouldn't worry. Um, it's, it's a big deal. So today's podcast, we're going to go into Corona bashing. Uh, it has not stopped. It's actually gotten worse. Um, it will be a two-part show. We'll do an A and a B because there's so much stuff. Uh, we're going to hit the Dems. We're going to hit the media briefly. And then our news and social media nuggets. Good Lord. Um, I have a new bumper, losing my religion, because we decided to go after Christians this week in a way that just is inappropriate. And I usually play it in the hate section, but I'm going to bring it in the back end liberal shit. Um, it's really bad. So let's get into the Corona. Uh, let's just be honest. Uh, if I just did one synopsis, CNN, largely put their Trump bashing agenda ahead of what important role 
MRC analysts identified 44 guest interviews on CNN between 6 a.m. and noon Eastern on February 27th. Out of the 136 questions, 82 invited guests, even medical specialists, to criticize Trump. During the 10 a.m. Eastern hour, uh, Majority Whip Debbie Dingell actually chided host Poppy Harlow for attempting to inject politics into the issue. But that's what they wanted. So we're going to play up front our two... My two favorite sound bites, uh, and then we're going to go into a hate, a violent left. Right? It's just hate. It, the stuff they're playing now, it, it's just inappropriate. So you're going to hear Chuck Todd. You're going to hear a little synopsis of what I was going to be our intro today, but I took it off because of uh, um, the tornado. And then you're going to hear the violent left bumper and go straight into Corona politics we'll then talk for a second and then we'll do round two trump called it a hoax yeah we're we're just playing reindeer games like a motherfucker this administration has a war on science often for political reasons but it should still shock you that trump slashed the government agencies that would have been responsible for handling an outbreak some of the criticism coming at the white house is that they have been cutting positions your position that you held on the National Security Council, for example. Are you concerned that this is impacting their response? Is he worried that more about you know his, his best case for re-election than the real health threat here? Is the president misleading the American people about the virus and the outbreak? Given uh, Vice President Pence's history as governor dealing with a recent public health crisis, is he the best equipped to lead this effort at the White House? Do you think that he's the right point person? Is no. that the right way to handle no. a deadly this epidemic? Is, here's the thing, Mr. President. Pandemics don't care about politics. And President Trump doesn't appear to be doing anything to stop the Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient or anybody else. Politically speaking, this president may have to reap what he has sown when it comes to the public's trust, or lack thereof, in the institutions built to keep this democracy healthy. Pun intended. We are in a case where you reap what you sow. He spends a lot of time bashing institutions, and now he's quite wondering why people are questioning him. He, he should look in the mirror. The coronavirus being weaponized as yet another element to bring down Donald Trump. Democrats are using this for their political gain to try and stoke fear in the American people, which is shameful, wrong, and I think un-American. For them to try to take a pandemic and seemingly hope that it comes here and kills millions of people so that they could end Donald Trump's streak of winning is a new level of sickness. None of this seems to match the facts. What what facts are there that Democrats are doing this? Well, it seems like people are asking questions and they're concerned about the virus. This this implies some sort of political motivation, which is kind of gross. Well, I, I, I will tell you, there's been a lot of irresponsible rhetoric among Democrats and commentators. Who? Who is this? On the left. Name some names, sir. Well, uh, because this is just, uh, it just feels like gaslighting. P- please name some names. I'm, I'm a, we're all big. Well, re- we're all big re- people here. Name some names. There was a column in the New York Times that's, uh, that by a prominent liberal journalist that said uh, we should rename it the Trump virus. Okay, that, that, that is, does that apply, to, does that apply to all people? So that the president would be blamed. Chuck, this, this, this virus in began in China. Why take this? The president I ask you, took, this doesn't Chuck, help. This, this took not decisive help. action yeah. to protect the American people. And uh, and when, when you see voices on our side pushing back on outrageous and irresponsible rhetoric on the other side, I think that's important. Do you think this rhetoric from your side helps? I, I I never begrudge people responding to unwarranted, unjustified attacks. 
But I promise you, we're going to continue to focus on the mission the president's given this task force and given this government. And that is, we're going to bring the full resources of the federal government to bear. Police don't win. The biggest terror threat in this country is white men, most of them radicalized right up to the right. All punches are not equal morally. Some of the president's most prominent media allies are in full attack mode in a bid to downplay this growing outbreak as media hysteria or that familiar phrase, fake news. And I'm sorry, it's like, you got to be kidding me. Right. It seems like these hosts on some of the big shows over on Fox don't actually want to cover the serious public health threat that the coronavirus that exists. Poses. Right. Yeah. You're seeing some hosts say things like, um, or, or like Pete Hickstaff, you just heard him say, uh, that they want this virus to spread, that the media and Democrats want people to get sick. They want people to be infected. They want people to die because it will uh, tank the stock market and possibly hurt Donald Trump's re-election chances. Obviously, that's a lie. It's reprehensible. But that's the kind of message that people over on Fox are, are saying. And I'll make one more point. Mm -hmm. uh, during public emergencies, whether it's a health crisis, whether it's a terror attack, a, a storm like a hurricane coming, people rely on organizations like this one, like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, they rely on news organizations to provide credible information yep. and to um, let them know what precautions they should be taking, what is going on, what is the government saying. And so for uh, Fox hosts and, and even the president and states to be undermining the credibility of, of media organizations Stankers. right now at a time like this, it, it's... It's appalling. The, the person call him out. Well, the person there that seems to have the sickness is Donald Trump Jr. to spread that horrendous lie again that the media wants to see people die by the millions, according to Trump Jr. If it hurts his father's re-election chances, that's not true. No one's trying to do that. The media uh, folks that I speak with are trying to get the message out there to the public from the government officials so people can take the proper precautions. And one further uh, final note is that Fox, ironically, has been attacking all these other media organizations for supposedly politicizing this, uh, this crisis, this public health crisis. When... If you actually watch the channel, the only people politicizing this? Vice President Mike Pence is one of the three people we have been told is in charge of the coronavirus situation in the last few days. What exactly does his record on public health tell us? John Avalon here with a reality check. John. Hey, guys. So hope for the best, prepare for the worst. That's a motto for first responders. And preparing for a pandemic requires coordination, elevating science over superstition. And success depends a lot on the credibility of the person communicating, which is why some eyebrows raised when President Trump, posting a Pepto-Bismol colored tie, typed his Veep Mike Pence to lead America's response to the coronavirus. Now, Mike Pence's big problem is that he doesn't have a stellar record when it comes to public health crises. And at times, he's barely been on speaking terms with science. For example, his reaction to an HIV outbreak in Indiana was described as a textbook case for how not to do it by an epidemiologist from Yale. And here's how he got that failing grade. So when Mike Pence was in Congress, he voted to cut funding for Planned Parenthood. Two years later, the only public clinic that did HIV testing in Scott County, Indiana, closed its doors. There was soon an HIV outbreak there, made worse by addicts shooting drugs and sharing needles. 
So the CDC recommended distributing clean needles as a way to stem the tide. As governor, Pence disagreed. And as the problem escalated, he said he'd pray on it. Now, there were 81 confirmed HIV cases by the time Pence finally relented and allowed a 30-day needle exchange. Ultimately, 215 people in Scott County were infected with HIV, worst outbreaks in the state's history. Yale researchers found that that number could have been cut by about 75% if the state acted sooner. Um, you got to go all the way back uh, to his Indiana governorship, but there's Scott County. The Planned Parenthood was shut down. That was the only place where folks could go for HIV testing. Um, it was shut down in part because of a vote that Mike Pence took, and then he's he's governor. Uh, you had an outbreak of HIV because people shooting drugs, and, and Mike Pence did not want to take the advice of the federal government and health experts that there should be a needle exchange. As a result, the number of infections basically quadrupled. Uh, and a subsequent study said it was about the worst response you could have. Um, prayer didn't work. Other aspects that things uh, did not work. What really worked was once they finally conceded that you needed to get on the ground. And so public health is a tricky thing when your politics are done through the filter of social conservatism or religion. Well, and needle exchange programs have proven effective. Correct. Over and over and time. And I understand why they're unpalatable conservatives, but public health requires something more than playing to the bay. The truth matters but only when you actually see it. And if you were watching Fox News this week, whether it was in the morning or at night, you would think that the media and the Democrats are happy about the coronavirus. Please watch this. Watching the media coverage today, it seemed like some of the Trump haters were actually relishing in this moment. Tonight, I can report the sky is absolutely falling. We are all doomed. The end is near. The apocalypse is imminent, and you're going to all die, all of you, in the next 48 hours, and it's all President Trump's fault. Or at least that's what the media mob and the Democratic Extreme Radical Socialist Party would like you to think. Watch the Democrats, watch the media. You start to feel like they're rooting for coronavirus to spread. I have no idea what any of those people are talking about. Dylan, what's your reaction to this narrative from conservative media? Well, look, you know, two things. First of all, on the one hand, the, the sort of unwavering loyalty that conservative media like Fox News, talk radio, has to this president in the White House is very familiar. Their willingness to attack the media, whether it be mainstream media, uh, uh, about anything that seems even remotely critical of the president is also something that is extremely familiar. However... When you are talking about something where there is a public health emergency, if it were a natural disaster, anything where public safety is in question, to then go out and politicize it and, and, and sort of lead your viewership at Fox News or your listeners on talk radio to believe uh, that they have nothing to worry about because you have such a vested interest in defending this president seems to me to be getting very far into the realm of irresponsibility. We are not talking about impeachment. This is not just a question of choosing your own facts. This is a question of the safe, uh, uh, the safety of the American public. And so, I Joanne Banks, uh, how does an administration like this one mitigate? this credibility gap. And that's not a partisan statement, that's just a, a statement of fact, that this credibility gap exists. It is a serious problem, and part of the problem is that we don't trust the administration, and they haven't shown us any way in which they are really in control of the situation. You know, if we go back to the era of Nixon, he wasn't very trustworthy either, except we did trust him to run the government. Mm. And we would have trusted what his administration said. We would have trusted that they would have put in charge the right people. They would have let the doctors tell us what to do and what was being 
being done. They would have been prepared. They wouldn't have let people go to Travis Air Force Base without the proper uh, protection. And that's the difference between then and now is we trusted Richard Nixon even though he... As stocks swan dive and coronavirus fears grow, President Trump today praising his administration's response, now being led by Vice President Mike Pence. The president has no higher priority than the health and safety of the American people. The vice president now moving to control what information gets to the public. According to senior White House sources, all statements about coronavirus from the CDC or the health department must now be vetted by the vice president's office. The CDC warning the coronavirus will spread, saying it's not a matter of if, but when. However, 24 hours ago, the president saying this. I don't think it's inevitable. I think that there's a chance that it could get worse. There's a chance it could get fairly substantially worse, but uh, nothing's inevitable. The Senate's top Democrat says Trump isn't being straight with the American people. The president must stop trying to minimize the nature of the coronavirus threat. His attempts at spinning the facts are just not credible and they are harmful to the federal response. The West Wing's working to streamline its messaging through the vice president's office, but one top doctor, Anthony Fauci, who appeared with Pence today, reportedly told associates he's been instructed not to say anything else without clearance, according to the New York Times. The vice president has also come under fire for how he handled a spike in HIV cases in Indiana in 2015 when he was governor, initially opposing a needle exchange program before backing one that slowed the outbreak weeks later. What was his approach? It was to put politics over science and let a serious virus expand in his state. He obviously has learned from that and arguably would maybe be in the best spot to know how you deal with this. But Danica, I want to ask you what you think is going on with, with these crazed conspiracy theories from right-wing media. What is this about? So this poses a unique challenge to the conservative media landscape because their hmm. base, which constitutes social and cultural conservatives, generally, on average, tends to be more concerned about issues related to pathogens and hygiene and cleanliness. And I know that this is a hard pill to swallow, but this, there's a lot of research from political psychology that actually suggests that those kinds of concerns may actually result in attitudes and behaviors that are socially or culturally conservative, like on matters of race, sexuality, immigration. Okay, let me just make sure I understand. So you're saying yeah. political science finds that conservatives have more of a disgust reaction when In, they hear about yes. something like a virus. Correct. Exactly right. Okay. Okay. Brian, on one level, maybe folks aren't surprised um, to see that happen, but facing a public health crisis, playing a game like that, like this, is serious. Yeah, and these are... Um, people who are, for some reason, only making this about politics, trying to focus only on politics. And that's because they are hammers. So all they see are nails. Sean Hannity exists in his mind to defend Donald Trump no matter what. And so he is making this about Trump when ultimately it is not. Uh, this is about experts and scientists in Trump's government that are trying to get accurate information out to the public. Unfortunately, the president, his lack of credibility is an issue. Uh, and the White House deserves scrutiny on that front. But it does seem like there's this attempt from pro-Trump media to make this all about Trump and politics when that's really not the arena this is being fought in. The, the, the battle against this virus is not being fought in the political arena, but that's right. the only place they know. And he's not the only one, Sean Hannity is. Right, that, that's absolutely right. This has been going on all week long from the likes of Rush Limbaugh. Here are a few of the other examples. 
They're rooting for the problem to get worse. They're rooting for mysteries, unknown cases, quarantines, towns, for it to become an absolute national crisis for one reason and one reason alone. They have yet to find a reason to try to drag down the presidency of Donald Trump. They don't care about the public health aspect of this, most of them. They care about how this can be used to damage Donald Trump and build up whoever the Democrats nominate. Democrats and their media cronies have decided to weaponize fear and also weaponize suffering to improve their chances against Trump in November. <laughs> I didn't initiate that graphic up. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's... I wish I could just laugh at it. I, I wish I could write it off as being unimportant. But it's reprehensible for, for them to be out there saying that the media is trying to take down Trump well, Brian, it's not and just, weaponize fear. It's There's not real just, consequences and it's not just, But it's not just... It's not just a media spe spectacle that uh, defending, uh, downplaying and taking that position. We're actually you're hearing some of that coming from the White House, too. Mick Mulvaney telling yes. folks to turn off their TVs. Right. Just don't, don't watch. Don't watch. Bro. Don't look at the markets yeah. uh, in free fall, et cetera. There is an attempt. To I I still sit sometimes and stare when I listen to these sound bites and go, what the fuck? How is that journalism? How? Now, the, the catch-up front, the stock market rebounded. The media's job didn't work. The March 2nd, let's tank the fucking economy, didn't work. And when we get to our Dem section, more people are dropping out. You're stuck with what you're stuck with, liberals. But to politicize this, this would be inappropriate on so many levels under Obama. And what's more important is nobody would do it. They just wouldn't do it. The President of the United States doesn't make bioweapons. Like they're saying this is what China did. It got out. It's a bioweapon. But to politicize on the level CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, fucking PBS, MSDNC, my God in heaven... So then they tried to do the uh, all murderers and rapists... And those good people from Charlottesville, and they said he said it was a hoax. President Trump, meanwhile, held a rare Saturday news conference to give another update on coronavirus. He was pressed about his comments at a rally Friday night where he called coronavirus a democratic hoax against his presidency. NBC's Hans Nichols is at the White House with more. Hans, good morning. Good morning, Willie. President Trump was pressed to clarify his Friday night comments when he called concerns about coronavirus the Democrats' new hoax, suggesting that Democrats were inflating the threat for political advantage. Now, in that surprise press conference yesterday, the president tried to explain that the hoax he was referencing had nothing to do with the very real public health risk. Not, I'm not talking about what's happening here. I'm talking what they're doing. That's the hoax. That's just a continuation of the hoax, whether it's uh, the impeachment hoax or the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax. This is what I'm talking about. Uh, certainly not referring to this. How could anybody refer to this? This is very serious stuff. How is this strategy going for him where he's trying to have it both ways, sort of as candidate Donald right. Trump at the rally firing up the base and President Donald Trump in that briefing room? Well, it, you know, I do think something changed when we had the first American death. I mean, you, you saw the president's tone changed a lot yesterday afternoon. And I thought it was notable. He goes over to CPAC where you would assume he could really, you know, channel his his sort of his rally Trump campaigner. 
and he backed off of the coronavirus attacks. He didn't do the same business that he did on Friday night. I do think the attitude inside that White House uh, has completely changed uh, since the the death of this of the first coronavirus um, uh, victim here in the United States without no known uh, connection overseas. I, I'll be curious to see how long that lasts, but I, I have detected just in the last 24 hours, and I could feel it in the in the sit down that I had with the vice president. I think that has changed their mindset a bit. It's a shame it took a death to get them there. We're going to show some remarks from the president, and then how he tried to dial him back some yesterday. Uh, the president suggesting in one speech, and you can read this how you wish. Uh, the Democrats have been harshly critical. Democrats have said they don't think the administration is prepared. Uh, the administration thinks the Democrats have been too political; that they're not giving them a chance, not listening to the information. But the president used the word, one of his favorite words, hoax. Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. One of my people came up to me and said, "Mr. President." They tried to beat you on Russia, Russia, Russia. That didn't work out too well. They couldn't do it. They tried the impeachment hoax, and this is their new hoax. A hoax referring to uh, the action that they take to try and pin this on somebody because we've done such a good job. Uh, the hoax is on them. Uh, they complain that the Democrats are playing politics in a rally to link it to impeachment and to Russia coronavirus. No. Probably not a great great call <laughs> with something like this. Um, you know, if you want to take politics out of it, then keep politics out of it. If, if you think the Democrats are doing that, let them do it. But you're the president. You have the biggest megaphone in the world. And um, the administration has a responsibility to make sure that the public stays safe as this, uh, as this threat um, appears to be growing. Uh, and you can spin it however you want. Viruses don't care about politics. Uh -huh. Uh, it's wise to tell people not to panic, but it's also in, in times like this, you want the government to just give you facts. Mm -hmm. That's it. So how you can keep your family safe, you can go to work, you, your kids can go to school. That's what you need. You don't need these other things interfering. Um, you've got to be above the politics. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see on a Monday what the markets say, right? You look, you look at last week, uh, the markets uh, all over the place, a huge de decline, trillions of dollars uh, wiped off the books and a lot of the gains uh, that the stock market made basically wiped out. And part of that, I think, was due to the president being all over the place and contradicting uh, some of these experts, kind of being the hype man and saying all is well. And so we'll see uh, what the markets say and what his reaction to the market. I saw it for, from Trump War Room. It was on Twitter. Somebody retweeted. I don't follow Trump War Room, but Politico published a very nasty, very unfair attack, falsely claimed of President Trump called coronavirus folks a hoax. In fact, he listed the many things he's doing to stop the virus from spreading. Fact checkers looked at it, and now everyone on Facebook knows Politico is fake news. Get the facts here from Check Your Facts. At no point in the rally does Trump directly call the novel coronavirus outbreak, a hoax, or conspiracy. In fact, he refers to respiratory virus as a public health threat and reiterates we are taking it very, very seriously. That's what we're doing. We're preparing for the worst. Trump denied that he called the coronavirus a hoax in a February 29th press conference. He said he was referring to the action that they take to try and pin this on somebody because we've done such a good job. The hoax is on them. I'm not talking about what's happening here. I'm talking about what they're doing. Um... Beware, Doug. More lies. He has increased CDC funding and hasn't fired anyone on the pandemic team. Katie Pavlich, reporter to President Trump. Why have you muzzled Dr. Fajuki? Dr. Fajuki, I've never been muzzled and I've been doing this since Reagan. Oof.
Jake Tapper. Trump says he used the word hoax not about coronavirus itself, but about the Democrats were saying it about the administration. Amazingly enough, a video clip was provided by Vox's Aaron Ruper, who still claims those undercover Planned Parent videos are deceptively edited, and he says he didn't say it. Great Plains girl. Sad this even needs clarification. Bradley Brewer. Anyone who watches clip would ascertain the same thing. Anyone pretending he said coronavirus is a hoax is an adamant liar. Another. I didn't vote for Trump, and you guys are so bad at your job that it's annoying, but you're making me want to. They tried every angle. Joe Lockhart. This room looks like America. That is America 40 years ago. The strength of our country is in diversity, cross-gender, race, gender, religion, and ethnicity. If you wonder why these guys never seem to have a clue, just look at the too many white faces on a fucking picture Mike Pence did. Stephanie Rule, where's the women? Every possible thing. Journalists, the coronavirus is very serious, and shame on anyone who politicizes it, as they politicize it. It got so bad, Dr. Drew took a side, and I'm not going to play the soundbite because I'm soundbite heavy today. I don't know what they're talking about. We used to point at the way Indiana responded to the opiate of the HIV epidemic as a model for the country. I don't know what they're talking about. The only reason I felt comfortable with Pence as vice president was I was aware of his track record in Indiana and handling these serious problems. They handled them better than most states did, almost any other state. So I don't know what the hell people are talking about. It's fake news. And Dr. Drew is not a Trumper. By no means would somebody say Dr. Drew is a fucking Trumper. But he didn't say it. They're so desperate. They'll try everything. Jeff, yeah, funny those who are hyper-cynical, who ain't so much they can't see. We have a huge challenge, and that getting behind our leaders for this is a challenge, is the right thing to do. Very funny to those who'd rather manifest their hatred than for the USA to succeed. New York Times on pandemic. Pence's Trump virus versus that of Brain Ron Klain. Of course it's going to happen. There's a coronavirus, a genius problem, life and death. And what is the response of the New York Times? Not to mention the Democrats, but I repeat myself, play politics. Use a deadly serious life or threat moment to smear the president and mock his vice president. How does this work? Exhibit A would be in this column. And yes, the New York Times. Headline, let's call it a Trump virus. And we already covered that last podcast. I found it right from the time. He knows for his ability to handle high stakes and fast-moving politics and policy changes, Mr. Klain was the lead Democrat lawyer for Mr. Gore during the 2000 election recount. It was later played by Kevin Spacey in Recount, the HBO drama. He was a second crisis response operative, and there's no difference between Ebola and hanging chads. The Times made a point of citing Klain's fellow Obamaites to emphasize just how well qualified he was to handle the Ebola epidemic. Some former co-worker said Mr. Klain is uniquely positioned to help Mr. Obama get tighter control control of a multi-faceted government effort to combat Ebola. You see, back when it was Obama, anybody he did was handed down from Moses. This person is an expert. That's just a fact. Because that's what they said. Those are with the podcast in the beginning. That was their thing. It brought up articles like this. 
Media claimed Trump called coronavirus a hoax. Here's what he actually said. While speaking at a rally in Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina, Trump brought up the coronavirus. The Democrats attempt to politicize the issue. Trump called the media attempts a new hoax. But you know, wouldn't know that from the media headlines following the event. Here's what Trump actually said. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. Coronavirus. They're politicizing it. We did one of the great jobs, you said. You say, how President Trump doing? They go, oh, not good, not good. They have no clue. They don't have any clue. They can't even count their votes in Iowa. They can't count their votes. One of my people came up to me and said, Mr. President, they tried to beat you on Russia, Russia, Russia. That didn't work out too well. They couldn't do it. They tried the impeachment hoax. There was a perfect conversation. They tried anything. They've tried it over and over. They've been doing it since you got in. In all turning, they lost. It's all turning. Think of it. And this is their new hoax. But you know, we did something that's pretty amazing. We have 15 people in a massive country, and because of the fact that we won early, we won early, we could have a lot more than that. We're doing great. Our country is doing great. He's doing what a president does. You must calm the crowd. That's what you're supposed to do. It all started with Dana Milbank. Remember this moment. Trump of South Carolina just called the coronavirus a hoax. Politico ran with it. Trump rallies his base to treat coronavirus as a hoax. President Donald Trump on Friday night tried to cast the global outbreak of coronavirus as a liberal conspiracy intended to undermine his first term, lumping it alongside impeachment and Mueller investigation. Trump did no such thing, yet the political article continues along this assumption. NBC was no better pushing a headline that read, Trump calls Corona Democrats new hoax. The outline lead also claimed Trump said the outbreak is a new hoax, even though that's not what he said. CNBC followed suit with a similar headline. Trump says the coronavirus is Democrats' new hoax. Usually media outlets write a headline like this to get clicks, but to let the actual article contain accurate information. In this case, each outline kept inaccurate assumption from the headline throughout the article. And it brought in talking point received, talking point carried out. Dana Milmeg started it. Eric Spencer says he's not the only one. Aaron RuPaul is also spreading the hoax. And Ted Lou shared RuPaul's tweet. Right on cue, Ted Lou was all over the new talking point. That motherfucker did like eight tweets on it. Tim Boyum, he's a fool. Joe Biden on Real Donald Trump Comet last night in South Carolina regarding coronavirus. More from my interview with him later. Ken Dillian, Trump calls coronavirus Democrat new hoax. Bill Crystal, President Trump has called concerns about the spread of coronavirus a hoax. Bay Area Freud. He did not call the virus a Democrat hoax. That is a lie, easily discernible by watching the video. He called the Democrats' reaction a hoax. Chad Felix Green, this is not true. This is proven false by a video in your own article, Ken Dillian. Eddie Zipperin, actually, he said tweet like yours attempting to politicize the coronavirus on the new hoax. You're a liar. Here's the video. The A. P called him out. Dana Loesch. I get that nuance is dead, but the purposeful misrepresentation here is ridiculous. It's a compulsive disorder. You know he means their narrative, not the actual virus, you idiot. It goes on and on and on. Jeffrey Ingersoll. Trump, we have to take it very seriously, preparing for a worse. Politico, the global outbreak is a liberal conspiracy. Jeff Gisa, everyone from Bill Crystal to Ted Lieu is spinning this as if Trump was saying the coronavirus itself is a hoax. Even Politico is jumping in. And what point does this constitute a disinformation campaign as opposed to media spin? And he grabbed them all. Paul Saka, congratulations. 
You helped him get reelected. America trust and mass media edges down to 41%. I mean, when you get the AP correcting you, that's bad. The AP is so liberal, it's not even funny. I'm to blame. Waiting for Twitter to do something about this misinformation. Oh, hey, my paint just dried. Because it's not happening. They never did it. Chad Felix Green, we have Twitter, Warren, Facebook, all screaming they must stop political misinformation through government force. A Washington Post journalist shares an NBC News article that is clearly and intentionally lying about Trump on the coronavirus. Nothing happens. Stephen Miller shows the New Yorker where they got a mask on the face of the president. And he says, what an incredible article. Then MSNBC Rule and Dylan Byers accuse Fox News and Talk Radio of trying to politicize the coronavirus. More on that in a second. That was their angle. They're trying to politicize. Fucking people are politicizing it as they politicize it. As of yesterday, Stephanie Rule was brought on the Today Show to talk about money matters. Like she's a normal journalist. And then she went on her show and did this. Dylan, what's your reaction to this narrative from conservative media? Well, look, you know, two things. First of all, on the one hand, the the sort of unwavering loyalty that conservative media like Fox News, talk radio has to this president in the White House is very familiar. Their willingness to attack the media, whether it be mainstream media, uh, uh, about anything that seems even remotely critical of the president is also something that is extremely familiar. However... When you are talking about something where there is a public health emergency, if it were a natural disaster, anything where public safety is in question, especially something where you have a group like the CDC coming out and saying this could be bad, we need to get ready to prepare for a scenario in which schools are shutting down, in which people have to work from home, in which there's limited availability to medical services or doctor's offices, to then go out and politicize it and 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 sort of lead your viewership at Fox News or your listeners on talk radio to believe uh, that they have nothing to worry about because you have such a vested interest in defending this president seems to me to be getting very far into the realm of irresponsibility. We are not talking about impeachment. This is not just a question of choosing your own facts. This is a question of the safe, uh, uh, the safety of the American public. And so I think in that regard, it's extremely irresponsible. While they're politicizing, that's what we're doing. Lisa Power, we're in the middle of a global health crisis, and Fox News website is leading with complaining about CNN. CNN blasted by critics for nonstop Trump derangement. Oliver Darcy, this is the same new operation that anchors Brett Baer and Chris Wallace in the face of. The guy whose job is to complain about Fox News is upset that Fox News is complaining about the network. And one further uh, final note is that Fox, ironically, has been attacking all these other media organizations for supposedly politicizing this uh, this crisis, this public health crisis. When, if you actually watch the channel, the only people politicizing this happen to be on that network. And you, you, I think you just saw it right there with, with Donald Trump Jr. Funny that. Yeah. Oliver Darcy, thank you for thank all you. of that. Call him out. Call him out. Our special... They spend all day watching Fox News. And say they're politicizing while they're politicizing. 
getting to my point in a second. Because it doesn't stop there. Jay Inslee, I just received a call from VP Mike Pence thinking Washington State for effort to combat combat the coronavirus. I told him our work would be more successful if Trump administration stuck to science and told the truth. That's what he took to Twitter. Razor, the vice president reached out to me to help me save lives, and I insulted him to get interaction on social media. This is nasty, politicized response to jester goodwill at a time when common cause is needed. It's really despicable of you, Governor. I just received a tweet from Washington Governor Jay Inslee. He whined about Mike Pence, and he used the coronavirus as an opportunity to score political points. James Wood Woods. Since the Russian hoax was such a joke and the impeachment backfired so resoundingly, why would people who once got a boner for Michael Avani do? Well, pray for catastrophe to attack Trump, of course. Even a helium-voiced little bitch like Seltzer can find God. Because he reworked the one we covered last time. The same one. Uh, his trust is down and now's the time when it really is going to show. I mean, this is what we talked about, about the left since 2016. They go into Ukraine and are illegally getting information on a candidate. They illegally wiretap a candidate, and then they run out Mueller investigation. Projection. Their people are beating fucking people up in the street. They fucking do protests and burn businesses on Inauguration Day. Oh, it's the white supremacist. One of their people shoot up a baseball field. It's Trump's rhetoric. These people project like you wouldn't believe. While they're doing it, they say the other side's doing it. And the problem is, because their media is so in... You know, Fox News ain't got shit on the MSM. The MSM pushes talking points. I got a soundbite today in the Dems. Literally the left pushing them. The media is pushing the left again to do stuff. And they do it because everybody in the media is a liberal. So they're part of the establishment and they push these people to do stupid shit. Brings up articles like this. Four key points on coronavirus and the Democrats' political games. One, we don't know enough about the coronavirus. The mortality rate is estimated upward at 2%, but it varies widely among populations. The WHO, for example, estimated the mortality rate in Wuhan, the epicenter of the virus, is 2.9, but 0.7% everywhere else. America is in other countries. We have health stuff to fix things. Three, Trump is not mishandling situation. The Democrats are playing politics. Even the Associated Press acknowledges the Democrat complaint that Trump cut funding for the Centers of Disease Control is a lie. And then they literally fucking had a tra- fact check that he didn't call it a hoax. And then they said that it isn't. The, I mean, it just goes on and on. When the AP once again is doing fact checking on the left, you're fucked. Four, the stock market is back up. It didn't work, liberals. But they're not stopping. It's non-stop politicizing. It just, they, they just can't fucking stop. And it's disgusting. This is a major thing. And it shows, once again, the left always says the right can't handle big things, and they can't handle big economies. And the media parrots that during the Obama time, McCain isn't ready for the crisis. Obama is ready for the crisis. But if this is how you act during a crisis, I'm telling you, normal people and independents are staring at the left and the media going, what the fuck? 
We used to be a country where the opposing party had to come with solutions. The left doesn't have solutions. They have partisan politics. Fear-mongering. And hunks and chunks of fucking fake news. So, that's our first section. We're going to come into the violent left that I forgot to play the bumper for because we're going to go straight into the hate section. While we're doing that, our music soundbite, which is now no longer music, it's just people talking. This is a video off Twitter, verified, of illegal immigrants in Mexico putting their children over smoke so that they're crying when they get to the border and have better photogenic qualities for their cause. I shit you fucking knock. Welcome back to Flyover Politics Podcast with Tony Reed. That is new reaction from Capitol Hill just coming into us in the last few minutes as lawmakers head out of that closed door briefing on the coronavirus. We've been talking about Democratic Congressman John Garamendi was in that room. He is joining me now. The newly diagnosed victim we've been talking about from Solano County, California is his constituent. The first possible case of community spread, meaning Congressman, of course, doctors don't know where she got sick since she had no travel to China. No known exposure. Can you give us any indication of how she is doing right now? Have you been in contact with her doctors, her family, anybody around her? I do not have an update on her on her situation, although we know it to be very serious. And our hearts and prayers go out to her and her family. Uh, she was caught up in a very gross mistake by the Center for Disease Control that really didn't get into the control part of their job. They let this thing go. They didn't move quickly, knowing that the entire country of China was shut down, that there was an, an absolute probable, absolute fact that this illness was going to spread beyond China. And yet, the Center for Disease Control failed to take immediate aggressive action to get ahead of this. And now we have community spread. And it's going to be in other communities around the nation. The question to us today is, so where are we today? Do we have testing facilities? Do we Are we able to gear up? Is the money available uh, to support all of these? Most of those answers are, well, it's in process. So I was going to say, did you get satisfactory answers to those questions you just brought up in the briefing you were just at? Yeah. Well, with regard to the whistleblower, uh, they said, well, from March Air Force Base in Southern California, uh, there was no breach of protocol. I asked about Travis, and they said, well, we'll get back to you later, and later will be this afternoon where we'll meet with them. Obviously, it was not successful at Travis Air Force Base. 
what part of those protocols of self-protection by the workers, uh, we don't know. But we do know that it is in the community surrounding Travis Air Force Base. Now, with regard to testing, now, let me Let me pause you no there for one second, Congressman, Let me because I just want to bring people up to speed. You are talking about the whistleblower complaint as reported by the Washington right. Post that alleges that HHS staffers dealing at Travis did not have proper protective gear, did not have proper training, even assisting these evacuees. Obviously, the patient we are talking about, your constituent, is in this broader area. I want to be very clear. Do you believe, do you suspect that there perhaps is a link to the actions that this whistleblower has alleged and the patient in your community who has contracted coronavirus? The answer will inevitably be yes. How else did this illness get into the community? Uh, most likely, high probability, it came from the patients, uh, the evacuees that were brought to Travis Air Force Base that were served by uh, local community uh, workers bringing the food, working with the people. That's a high probability. We have a meeting this afternoon to get into that. There's the next step, and that is how then do we deal with the reality that the community is infected. That requires public health services, standard public health. Track it down. Make sure people know what's going on and make sure that there is testing available. And here's where the CDC really fell down on its fundamental task of making sure that test kits were available. To this day, test kits are not readily available throughout the United States. And just late last night, the CDC finally, after weeks of asking by the state of California to open up their laboratories so that the state labs could test this. Yeah. The CDC said today, okay, you can go ahead. That is two months too late, and here we go with you, community spread. I can, you're, you're very, I think, it's coming through the screen, Congressman. You're, you're, you're angry. You're obviously visibly emotional about this. I want to ask you about the concerns that you raised in that room and about, you know, I cover the White House as my day job uh, for NBC News. The vice president's office is handling all the communications and messaging. I understand that Dr. Fauci was at your briefing. Did he talk at all? There had been some reporting that he was telling associates that he felt like he was not allowed to speak freely, that, that there, there are concerns, I think, more broadly, that the White House was trying to clamp down on, on people talking about, experts talking about coronavirus. Did Dr. Fauci address that? Do you share those concerns? Can you talk through some of that? Well, insofar as I can repeat what he said, he said, I was not muzzled. However, I was to go on the Sunday talk shows, five of them. Uh, the uh, vice president's office then took over the uh, uh, the control of this situation and told me to stand down, not to do those shows. Now, you, you can draw your own conclusions whether he was muzzled or not, but clearly uh, he was scheduled to do Sunday talk shows, and he was told not to proceed with that. When you look at the discussion around coronavirus as it exists in the politics sphere, the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., was on this morning uh, and suggested or said outright that Democrats are taking a pandemic, seemingly hoping, and I'm quoting, quote, it comes here and kills millions of people so it can end the president's streak of winning. He called that a new level of sickness. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that comment from, from Don Jr. He should not be near me when he says that. There would be a serious altercation. That so is just some... totally outrageous. That is totally outrageous. I can assure you that there is not a Democrat or Republican in Congress that wants anybody to be sick. What we are concerned about is the administration's response to this illness. Uh, we've known since December 
that there was an epidemic in China. We've known since that time that there were Americans that were exposed to this in Wuhan and other parts of China. We know that there was a Princess cruise ship with high exposure and cases in Japan. Those people were brought back to the United States, frankly, with very little planning and very little preparation and no testing available in the United States to see whether they had the virus or not. Those are known facts. We also suspect that there was inadequate safeguards for the personnel that were serving these evacuees at the uh, air bases. Uh, we'll continue to investigate that. We now know that there is community spread in my district. I know that there is an individual that's very sick. Don Jr. had better not get any place close to me. It would not be a healthy situation. Congressman John Garamendi, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us this morning, and I hope you give us an update after you have a chance to catch up with those officials at that briefing later on this afternoon. Congressman, thank you for your time. We are following all of these threads uh, in that interview uh, that we just had with Congressman Garamendi. And this is CNN. That's right. That's right. Unhinged Democrat John Garamondi threatens President Trump's son with physical violence. He should never be near me when he says that. That would be a serious altercation. Don Jr. had better not get any place close to me. It would be a unhealthy situation. National TV. Tom Elliott. Garamondi suggests he might beat up Donald Trump for saying some Dems hope the coronavirus is spread to make Trump look bad. He should not be near me. Katie Hyde, threatening violence to someone for words spoken is an excellent way to prove you are passionately invested in the well-being of others. Cliff Sims. So CNN and company are making are more outraged by Donald Trump Jr. making an obviously hyperbolic statement than they are by a Democrat congressman threatening Don with violence on national TV. Truly deranged and tells you everything you need to know about the MSM, and he's right. That is the MSM. But he's not the worst. Insane podcast host tweets about spreading coronavirus to Trump supporters. The media treatment of the coronavirus outbreak is insane. Instead of typical, intense, fear-mongering pundits and commentators have been weaponizing disease politically, insisting that the Trump administration is exasperating the situation, even going so far as to push the idea of spreading the virus at Trump rallies. Pakistani-Canadian media man Ali A. Rizvi posted a disgusting quip about Trump supporters on Friday, February 28th. The producer of the Secular Jihad podcast, An Atheist Muslim, author proved how godless he is by wishing the coronavirus on Trump supporters. Not kidding. And it wasn't just about waiting for the disease to infect mega types all over the country. Rizvigi's sick joke mentioned, well, let's just fucking read it. One, <clears throat> Ali Arizivi, what to do if you have coronavirus? One, see your healthcare provider, make sure you call ahead. Two, separate yourself from families and friends. Three, wear a face mask. Four, cover all coughs and sneezes. Five, attend every Trump rally in your area. Do all steps in reverse orders. Yeah, that that's that's the left. That is the fucking left. Kill mega supporters so we can win the election. Is that still on Twitter? Yeah. 
that it violates the term of service? Nope. Because he's a liberal. They're not only politicizing kill Trump supporters. Here's an actual reporter saying, and remember, Bernie has rallies, Warren has rallies, Bloomberg has rallies. So three people left, as we'll learn in the Dem section today. Their rallies are okay. Here's a reporter pushing, well, Trump should stop his rallies because of the coronavirus. Safe or appropriate to be holding rallies during a public health crisis like this? Well, these were set up a long time ago, and others are. I mean, you could ask that to the Democrats because they're having a lot of rallies. They're all having rallies. That's what they're doing. They're campaigning. But do you think it's safe? Are you worried at all? Uh, I think it's very safe, yeah. I think it's very safe. That, that's just fucking rich. Laura Ingram. Now they want to st- Trump to stop his rallies. So transparent. Primaries, Democrat rallies, or just Trump rallies? Got it. So they want him to stop his rallies, yet it's okay for Democrats to keep holding theirs. The media is crazy. It's no different than holding a rally during flu season. The media needs to stop trying to create a crisis just so they can sell more papers. I'm disgusted by these media companies and their profits at any cost attitude. Oh, yeah. But see, they, the media can be surmised by David Brooks. Because remember, boys and girls, there's an upside for Democrats from the coronavirus. Is there, does it become, how much of an issue, David, I should say, does this become among these presidential candidates, the Democratic candidates? It could become, like, it could take over the election. I mean, I, I really know ideas. I'm not qualified to know how big this will spread, but I saw an article that most Americans will get some form of it, uh, and not a bad form, but some form. And if, that, if we start canceling events, if the economy goes down, if we can't gather in crowds, that's suddenly a gigantic event. Uh, and so many people who are Trump's critics, uh, or who even sympathized with him but didn't think he was a great manager, a great leader, Suddenly, they all say that we've been saying this for years. Well, at least we haven't had a real crisis. And then suddenly we get a real crisis. And so to look at it in the crass political terms, I don't see any upside for Trump. I do see significant downside and a lot of upside for the Democrats since they are the party of health care and since they are the party of government. Uh, and so, you know, I think it could it could really shock us how big this this becomes, as it already is in other countries. You know, I read Twitter and, and people literally are flabbergasted with some of the things people are saying during this time. And and I just look at them and go, are you dense? Don't you remember Obama? Never let a crisis go to waste. It's what the left does. They politicize holidays. Why would you think they wouldn't take a virus and figure out how they could politically calculate? And And Republicans during crises, have to worry about how the media is going to frame it so they can get reelected. I mean, let's not forget George Bush couldn't land, didn't want him to land. Reporter literally said he took the picture because he knew it was going to hurt him and got that famous picture of him looking at New Orleans out of a window. And then the media ran with it, and then the Democrats benefited, and they ran with it with... Incapable of helping people. Republicans don't care about people. That's that's how the game's played. Fast forward to Obama, the fucking hurricane in the Northeast. Folks, they framed Chris Christie hugging Obama. That was it. He was getting reelected. Look at him on the ground taking care of people. 
Mind you, it's totally different size storms. There was no way Trump could land and get there because New Orleans was fucking underwater. But we don't put out the information like that. We, we frame it for them. But this is what they've done. The hate on the left, this is just February. Compiled by the Media Research Center. Trump supporters misled it by crooked president, Sarah Silverman. Trump lies to people who love and trust him. Why wouldn't they believe him? Like 30s and 40s Germany, it's too insane to believe the world leader is lying to us. But he is. And it's dividing a nation who truly mostly agrees on the right and wrong. These people are brothers and sisters. They're not assholes. They are being wildly misled by a crooked president and his terrified henchmen. To say, do not trust the MSM. This is the only media held accountable for what it writes. Oh, really? It's held accountable? Bette Midler, poor Rush, poor fat, stupid, sick, hypocritical, drug addict Rush. Back when he was using, he admitted taking over 30,000 Oxycontins. You know what that means. He's not just a moron, he's an oxymoron. Bette Midler again. Donald Trump is typhoid Mary, a carrier, spreader of hate, poison, and despair. Projection, you hear it? Infecting everyone, unlucky enough to cross his path. Bed Midler again. You, Donald, are 5'10", 300 pound, lift wearing, sack of stinking, steaming garbage. Your thoughts are garbage, your actions are garbage. It goes on. Share! Misunderstood, he snubbed her. I've been alive through 13 presidents, and he's the most vengeful, illiterate, limp imitation of a man ever. He uses as his personal ATM the reason he didn't want to shake Nancy's hand is because her are bigger than his. George Tataki. One thing is clear, Speaker Pelosi knows how to capture a moment. That was about the rip. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell. Angry about acquittal, the world's upside down, it's batshit crazy watching them condone his lies with applause. You are evil, corrupt, and the biggest liar in the history of the world. Trump equals biggest tyrant and mass murderer and mass destroyer of everything. This is Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. We're living here in fool's hell. The United States of America is not a fool's paradise. It's a fool's hell. Donald Trump is somewhere down there floundering around the muddy water at the bottom of the old Gearc pool. This is a man who's failed at fucking everything in life. And then Mark Ruffalo. Donald Trump's a public enemy number one. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. This dude is standing in the way of everything significant happening in the world as far as climate change is concerned. It's fucking terrifying, and it keeps me up at night. I'm in, un- inviting the rest of the world to get involved in our next election because the fate of the world is fucking in the balance. Walter Koning bashes Trump voters. This is uh, another Star Trek. He played Pavel Chekhov. In the original spring. Speaking of the far-left outlet salon on Monday, Koning described Trump era's Trump era as particularly heinous moment in American history. The state of the world is dreadful. It depresses me no end. Star Trek is a welcome respite from the infamy of the Trump administration and all the problems we're living in. I think this is a particularly heinous moment in American history with Donald Trump. This is not only because of a few individuals who now have control of the government, but that there is so much support for them. That there's, there's so much vitriol, discontent, and anger. These people are willing to sacrifice the good things in our culture and our life to support evil things. We as a country and a culture have not gotten to the positive places of progress from which we are not willing to retreat from. It just goes on and on. He continued, we have some good folks of people that we believe in. For example, when Barack Obama became president, I thought to myself, My God, we have really turned a corner. I am so proud to live and see this happen. And then there was Trump. 
There's a certain despair that follows me, that haunts me, because we're still doing the same things. Coding, however, urged people to hold on to hope that the world will get better. If we do not have hope, then we surrender, then we're giving up. Hope may be temporary, may last five or ten years. We're driven to make things better. We have that dream to make a better world. Jesus fucking Christ. They live in their... He lives in their head fucking rent-free. But as they talk about all the vitriol and the hateful Trump supporters, you don't hear stories that are the opposite of this story. The owners of a Mexican restaurant in Tucson, Arizona, faced social media backlash this week over a photo that showed them attending a Trump rally. Uh... Hispanic owners of Mexican restaurant north of Tucson targeted on social media after Trump rally from Tucson.com. The owner of a Mexican restaurant, Catalina, are fending off social media attacks after appearing in the VIP area of a Donald Trump Phoenix campaign rally last week. A member of the Grupo de Palafis Facebook group on Wednesday posted a screen grab image from February 19th rally that showed Sammy's Mexican grill owner, Betty Rivas, delicious Mexican food I've eaten there. From a February 19th rally that showed Sammy, Mexican girl owner Betty Rivas, standing behind Trump, donning a red cowboy hat and bossing with Latinos love Trump. That post on Grupos de Pafalias, which is marketplace where its 109,000 members can advertise goods and services, attracted more than 230 comments, pretty much all of them negative. The conversation then moves to Sammy's restaurant social media, including Yelp and Google. Very ugly stuff. They're saying nasty stuff about the restaurant. George Rivas said Friday, a day after his wife posted a video on Facebook defending their rights as naturalized American citizens to vote, support, and meet whoever they please. Just because we are Latinos, it doesn't mean that we have to feel like every other Latino in this country. We are individuals, and we feel that we have the constitutional right to meet and support whoever we want. This is the second time that the couple at the restaurant at 16502 North Oracle Road has been the target of Tucsonians opposed to Trump largely because of his immigration policies. And to 2016, the couple was on the receiving end of a nasty phone call and minor vandalism to the far Northwest Valley restaurant after Betty Rivas was invited on stage with Trump during the March 2016 campaign rally in Tucson. George Rivas said they have gotten a few nasty phone calls this time, but no one has caused any damage to the restaurant, which opened in 96 or made the threat of violence. Rivas said the online attacks have little to no impact on his business, which draws a bulk of his customers from Catalina, Adelbrook, and the far end of Oro Valley. People know us quite well in the area. I feel more than anything, they know who we are. We are not mean, bad, or racist people. They know that we they see posted online as a bunch of crap. Rivas said the people posting negative comments about Sammy's are just wasting their time. They're not going to achieve their goal of running us out of business. Ronald McDonald, completely uncalled for to have your business targeted on social media for attending a Trump rally. Sadly, sadly this needs to be said. Donald Trump supporters should be able to support POTUS without retribution. Yeah. You don't hear that on the left. Conservatives aren't so deranged they go to your Yelp and Google page and dog your restaurant that they never attended. But the left is full of hate. David Brooks again. No, not Sanders. Not ever. He's not a liberal. He's the end of liberalism. A huge op-ed. That guy's supposed to be an independent. 
Yeah. And their hate goes to everywhere. It's a unique opportunity, Chiefs Travis Kelsey says, of going to the White House after the Super Bowl. He's having to defend why he wants to go. I mean, what the fuck, people? Then we have the case of PragerU. Ninth Certain Court said that YouTube can can censor conservatives. It's okay. They have no problems with it. Because it's a private business. Let that ring. This is the Ninth Circuit. They're the liberals. Would they say the same thing about gays? I don't think so. If a person says, hey, I don't want to do your gay wedding because I'm a Christian, they're sued and run out of business. I mean, granted, none of this stuff affects my life, but why do I go crazy about it? Because that's fucked up. You're a bunch of goddamn hypocrites. You run the world hypocritical. That's why people don't, normals, don't support the Democrat progressive craziness right now. Because you're fucking a bunch of goddamn hypocrites. During Obama, you couldn't say anything. You couldn't criticize the smallest thing. Because it was considered disrespectful to the office of the President of the United States. That's what you fucking said. And now I'm going to do a hate section that I thought I'd never fucking do. But those out there in the Berkeley, I love you listening. At least I'm up front. I'm consistent. Because this is fucked up. Disgusting sticker of Greta Thunberg linked to Alberta Oil Company shocks Canadians. It blows my mind anyone would think this is funny. It's not funny. Because once again, she's still a minor, you jack wagons. Michelle Nerings cried when she first saw the sticker of what appeared to be a drawing of a teen activist, Greta Thunberg, being sexually assaulted and the name of the oil field company printed boldly across the bottom of the decal. For the record, I've seen the unedited. She wasn't being sexually assaulted. She has pigtails. Somebody was doing her doggy style. That's not sexual assault. There's no write-up in this sticker about sex. It wasn't like a byline. This woman didn't want to have sex. It's inappropriate, but that's just bullshit. Narang, who lives in Rocky Mountain House in West Alberta, is a proud supporter of the Canadian energy. Her relatives earn a living in the oil industry, which also supports the nonprofit she works for. She calls this the investment the oil and gas companies make in community her, her town beautiful. This is an industry Alberta is fighting for so de- desperately. The sticker is not something Alberta or Albertans need. Narang told the HuffPost Canada in an interview. Narang decided she couldn't stay silent. As someone who knows survivors of sexual assault, she never wants her 13-year-old son to see the sticker or be okay with violence against women. So she posted the image on Facebook as a way to call it out. This company represents everything that oil and gas industry needs to fight against. The sticker shows a drawing of the back of a nude female and two hands pulling her from behind on her braided hair. The word Greta is written across her lower back. This image has been censored. Silence never creates change. It's sad to me the sticker went through a supply chain of people who thought about it, printed it, and distributed it. It blows my mind anyone who would think this is funny. A friend who works in the oil industry sent an image of the sticker to Narang. They spoke to Huppo Canada on com- condition of anonymity, fearing repercussions of their job. 
The sticker reading Excite Energy Services was handed out recently as a promotional material as job sites to be worn on hard hats, the worker said. Although the actual stickers weren't distributed at the workplace, they said the graphic image was circulating among their colleagues on Wednesday. The worker said the company was asked if they would be interested in a similar sticker. It was completely disgusting and wrong, the worker said. Narang said she called the general manager of Excite, Doug Sparrow, asking him if he knew about the sticker that appeared to depict the rape of a minor. He said he was not aware of it, according to Narang, and his response was she's not a child, she's 17. Under the criminal code, child pornography is anything visual representation of a person, blah, blah, blah. The RCMP has investigated the image, and it's not child pornography because this lady went all in. So they didn't get them. Thunberg's response, they're starting to get more and more desperate. This shows that they're winning, that we're winning. But she didn't write it, her dad did. So once again, they took it too far, but it's still inappropriate. Why would you fucking take a picture of do that? Why? Why would you feed into what they talk about? Because remember, it's not about climate change. It's about intersectionality and POCs and women that don't really exist because there's no gender and it's all confusing. Jesus fucking Christ. Then, in the hate section, never thought I'd do this. Here's our peace accord with the Taliban. Endured decades of hostility and mistrust. Previous talks have faltered. This effort only became real for the United States when the Taliban signaled interest in pursuing peace and ending their relationship with Al-Qaeda and other foreign terrorist groups. They also recognized that military victory was impossible. I then asked Ambassador Khalilzad to serve as our lead negotiator to gauge the Taliban's sincerity. The agreement that we will sign today is the true test of this effort. We will closely watch the Taliban's compliance with their commitments and calibrate the pace of our withdrawal to their actions. This is how we will ensure that Afghanistan never again serves as a base for international terrorists. The negotiation process in Doha, with all of its twists and turns, has shown it is possible for us to take this step together. Over the past seven days, violence levels have reached their lowest point in the last four years. U.S. and Afghan forces responded to the reduced enemy attacks by also respecting peace. It was not perfect, but the Taliban demonstrated, even if only for a week, that when they have the will to be peaceful, they can be. The Afghan people have rejoiced. They're moving freely about the country to visit family and friends. They're trading. They're even dancing in the streets. But we're just at the beginning. Furthering the cause of peace will require serious work and sacrifice by all sides. The United States, the coalition, the Taliban, the Afghan government, other Afghan leaders, and the Afghan people themselves to maintain the momentum needed to reach a comprehensive inclusive and durable peace. This agreement will mean nothing, and today's good feelings will not last if we don't take concrete actions on commitments and promises that have been made. When it comes down to it, the future of Afghanistan is for Afghans to determine. The U.S.-Taliban deal creates the conditions for Afghans to do just that. Here's our take 
Here's our take on what steps by the Taliban will make this agreement a success. First, keep your promises to cut ties with al-Qaeda and other terrorists. Keep up the fight to defeat ISIS. Welcome the profound relief of all Afghan citizens, men and women, urban and rural, as a result of this past week's massive reduction in violence, and dedicate yourselves to continued reductions. It is this significant escalation of violence that will create the conditions for peace and the absence of it, the conditions and the cause for failure. All Afghans deserve to live and prosper without fear. Sit down with the Afghan government, other Afghan political leaders and civil society, and start the difficult conversations on a political roadmap for your country. Exercise patience even when there is frustration. Honor the rich diversity of your country and make room for all views. Afghan governments have failed because they weren't sufficiently inclusive. The Afghan government of 2020, and indeed the Afghanistan of 2020, is not the same as in 2001. Embrace the historic progress obtained for women and girls and build on it for the benefit of all Afghans. The future of Afghanistan ought to draw on the God-given potential of every single person. If you take these steps, if you stay the course and remain committed to negotiations with the Afghan government and other Afghan partners, we and the rest of the international community assembled here today stand ready to reciprocate. I know there will be a temptation to declare victory. But victory, victory for Afghans will only be achieved when they can live in peace and prosper. Victory for the United States will only be achieved when Americans and our allies no longer have to fear a terrorist threat from Afghanistan. And we will do whatever it takes to protect our people. The United States will press all sides to stay focused on the goal of a peaceful, prosperous, and sovereign Afghanistan, and Afghanistan free of malign foreign interference, where all voices and communities are heard and are represented. This is the only way. This is the only way a sustainable peace can be achieved. And for all of us here, and most importantly, for the security of the American Afghan people, this must happen. Thank you. There you're looking at the U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaking in Doha. He's there to witness the peace signing deal between the U.S. and Taliban. And the ceremony is uh, taking place there right now in Doha. So we're expecting. I just don't think this is smart. I just don't. I know we got to end the war eventually, but I just uh, I don't see this bearing fruit for all the deaths we had. I just don't. I disagree. But there it is. Other military news, Army won't follow Marine Corps lead and rename Confederate bases. Jesus fucking Christ on a popsicle stick, you fucking liberals. The Army has no plans to mirror or an order by the Marine Corps Commandant instructing his subordinates to remove Confederate-related paraphernalia from bases across the world, according to the service. The Marine Corps decision came the same month as Congressional hearing discussed the rise of white nationalism and extremism in the media or the military, an issue closely tied with the presence of Confederate monuments, flags, and naming conventions. We have no plans to rename any streets or installations, including those named for Confederate generals, an Army spokesman said. The Army operates 10 installations named 
after Confederate military commanders, Fort Lee, Fort Hood, Fort Bragg. There is no such installation for the other military departments, according to the Congressional Research Review, though some Navy ships have been named for Confederate officers. Though the Army is not going to do any of that Tom fucking foolery, because that's fucking stupid. Then we have, before we get to some sound bites, Ivanka Trump Taj Mahal trip gets Photoshop treatment. I just want to make sure you understand that was a Twitter moment. People making fun of the president's daughter. And back in the day, if you did anything from, uh, what was it, whatever, the Obama kids, the Clinton kids, that was inappropriate. But they made her look like a jackass in Photoshop. It was a Twitter moment. Nothing wrong, nothing, nothing wrong to see here, Pally. It's okay to dog conservatives. To our last sound bites, then we're going to media with some seriously interesting shit. I'm going to put the back end on the front because I didn't see this coming. Uh, we're going to play a sound bite of homeless, followed by illegal, followed by somebody attacking somebody with a syringe full of semen. Yeah. This isn't good. Let me show you the craziest thing you've ever seen, okay? We're here at my house in West Hollywood, okay? Look, this is a tent from two homeless guys. I came home the other day, and I'm like, hey, guys, y'all got to go. Inside my fucking gate, they jumped my wall, and they got their shit everywhere. And I'm like, hey, guys, you got to go. I call the cops. The cops get here, and they say, hey, if you touch their shit, we're going to take you to jail for fucking up their property. And I'm like... Dude, it's on my property. And they're like, doesn't matter. Don't touch the shit. All fucking night, these motherfuckers are fucking all night and being loud as fuck, getting fucked up, having parties and shit. You fucking libtard fucks. Well, another big story we're following tonight, a wild update in a disturbing case. An Anne County man accused of assaulting a woman with a syringe. Now police say they know what may have been in it. Other syringes in the suspect's home were filled with semen. WJZ is live tonight. Max McGee with the new information from police. Max. Rick, disturbing is the appropriate word to describe this story. Anne Arundel County Police arrested 51-year-old Thomas Stemmon Tuesday on assault charges. Now they're trying to figure out if there are any other victims. It's a case leaving people shocked and concerned. Anne Arundel County Police say last Tuesday officers were called to this grocery store in Churchton for an assault with a possible syringe. Video footage appears to show a man stab a woman with something inside the entrance. Days later, detectives say they got a tip identifying 51-year-old Thomas Stemmon as the suspect. He was arrested and charged with first and second degree assault and reckless endangerment. Now, police say semen was inside syringes they tested from Stemmon's home and car, but isn't clear if any one of those were used in the attack. We need to... Um find out, you know, do additional testing, find out what what this victim is uh, is up against if she was stabbed with one of those semen-filled syringes. Look at the video again. You can see the victim, Katie Peters, react in pain as the man in the video turns around to confront her. We spoke with the victim just days after her attack, and she told WJZ she remembered feeling like she was burned with a cigarette. 
I started driving home, and then it started hurting really bad. I called my son, said, dude, something's not right. You know, I hope nothing happens. I hope I make it home. I love you. The allegations have left people in Anne Arundel County in disbelief. People nowadays, you don't know what they're thinking. Wow. I would say that's very disturbing. Police say they're now looking to see if there are any other victims. If you've seen this video, it's it's very aggressive. Um, it's very deliberate. And that makes us feel like it's not his first time doing this. And WJZ reached out to Peters today for comment, but she declined to do an interview. Live at 11, I'm Max McGee for WJZ. I pulled off of that. So you heard the homeless situation. You heard the syringe. I wanted to play this. This is all over Twitter. And since we're in the primary season, we're about to go into our media slash Democrat Tom fucking foolery. Listen to this soundbite. It's reminiscent of what we heard in 2016, boys and girls. They didn't hand out those driver's license for just, you know, nice niceties so they can drive. Well, I like Democrats if I come here illegally. Can I register? This party support them legal? Yeah. I like this. See, I'm from the uh, Middle East. I want to vote to get some kind of office. Yeah, you do. There's no way for me to vote. Well, there is. But there isn't. You'd have to tell me you're a citizen when you're not. yeah, folks, they're gonna they're gonna have illegal votes. They're teaching people how to fucking do it. And if you think it's not happening, you're smoking fucking peyote, dude. They didn't hand out millions of fucking driver's licenses in California just to let them drive. They want their votes. That is the Democrat plan. Amnesty, 13 million votes, 14 millions. Who the fuck knows? We don't even know how many illegals are in our country, for Christ's sake. It's a hot fucking garbage fire. So, going to go into our last segment without a uh, bumper. Because I don't have anything long to listen to, but we're going to play the beginning of our media, and I'm going to play this anyway, and then we'll go into the big kahuna, Chris Matthews. Um, The mayor of Baltimore was just indicted and convicted of fraud and a bunch of shit with their children books, and most of the media ignored it, but when they did, they didn't really talk about that D behind her name, because that's the implicit violent. Implicit bias we talk about on the show. They never attach the D. Former Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh was sentenced today to three years in federal prison for a scam involving her children's books. The veteran Democrat earned hundreds of thousands of dollars in fraudulent sales of the books. She pled guilty to conspiracy and tax evasion. Okay, so last night. I started finalizing my podcast, and I had a section on Mr. Fucking Chris Matthews. And it was 
pretty big deal. Um, it, I have a segment on race on him still, but it came out that he was unfit for his job. A journalist accuses Chris Matthews of repeated suggestive sexually comments. In a Friday night column on GQ, former, former HuffPost reporter Laura Bassett revealed that MSDNC hardball host Chris Matthews was the cable's most news host she referenced in an October 2017 item allegedly alleging repeated inappropriate and sexually suggestive comments. Now remember, she's a Bernie supporter. She is a Bernie bro. Just keep that in the back of your mind. She argued that based on his downright irresponsible behavior that's been an open secret, Matthews is unfit for his job. Readers may recall that Matthews found himself in the news late December 2017 when our friend Amber Athey reported about him as having had a track record of sexual harassment towards female colleagues and guests, including one woman being given a separation-related payment. Unfortunately, the liberal media showed little to no interest in making the story go mainstream. But between the Matthews hostility towards socialist 2020 Democratic front-rower Sanders and expressing skepticism late Tuesday about an allegation that Mike Bloomberg told a female employee to get an abortion, the liberal media decided to finally listen. Imagine that Bassett didn't address her own stories with Matthews until paragraph 10. But prior to that, she began with a Bloomberg claims as Matthews discussed it in a post-debate spin room, which we played, about Warren, since Warren had brought it up during the debate against Bloomberg. In Bassett's view, she saw sexism, a lack of respect for believing women in Matthews' skepticism. After providing the examples of creepy on-air moments from Matthews, including that moment when Aaron Burnett, but not this one with Barbara Boxer, she pivoted and how she had... Her own stories about Matthews and revealed that he was the unidentified person in her expose. Then there's an open secret of Matthews' everyday behavior off camera with guests, which often creeps up to the line of sexual harassment without actually crossing it. So the women can never feel that it's worth jeopardizing their own career for a complaint. Many women in politics or media have interacted with a bombastic host of some kind of sort of story about him. In 2017, I wrote a personal essay about a much older married cable news host who inappropriately flirted with me in the makeup room a few times before we went on live and a show making me noticeably uncomfortable on air. I was afraid to name him at the time for the fear of retaliation. It was Chris Matthews. In 2016, right before I had to go on a show and talk about sexual assault allegations against Donald Trump, Matthews looked over me in the makeup chair and said, Why haven't I fallen in love with you yet? When I laughed nervously and said nothing, he followed up the makeup harvest. Keep putting makeup on her. I'll fall in love with her. Bassett's other antidote consists of Matthews admiring her in a red dress and wondering if she was going out after the show. When she said she wasn't sure, he said, The makeup artist, make you sure you wipe this off her face after the show. We don't want her up so some guys at a bar can look at her like this. I'm pretty sure that behavior doesn't rise to the level of legal sexual harassment, but it's undermined my ability to do my job, and after I publicized the story about it, even though I didn't name names, dozens of people knew it was from him. Okay, I'm going to say it because I'm a guy. Yeah, that's that's petty. That's petty. That That's not sexual harassment. You can say it's inappropriate conduct, but the first step in sexual harassment is, hey, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And the power play of him not putting you on your show, you're all over the fucking place, Bassett. You're going to get TV time. And so it, this is some weak sauce shit. But as we talked about, he continued to bash Bernie. And you don't bash Bernie. Bernie is the guy. 
there's he's gonna he's gonna he might end up being the fucking nominee. So we told him to shut up. We told him to step down. We told him to do all sorts of shit. And then during this week, he literally once again fucked up on air and talked shit about fucking Bernie, and people didn't like it. So uh, here's our one. I had it in race because. Tell me if this happened to a Fox News anchor. A Fox News anchor did this. We wouldn't be calling this racist. Democrats. Jamie, I see you standing next to the guy you're going to beat right there, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Lindsey Graham. Tim Scott. Tim Scott. <laughs> Jamie? Tim Scott. Who's that? That's Tim Scott. Who, I'm sorry. Oh, it's the other senator, Jim Scott. What am I saying? Big mistake. Mistaken identity, sir. Sorry. Tell me how you're going to beat uh, Lindsay. Everybody knows Lindsay. Yeah, you know, black people look all the same, right? Wrong. They do not, but that's what you'd say a fucking conservative did it. Media ignored that shit. Conservatives didn't. So then he goes on air last night, and he retires. So here's a full Monty. You're going to hear Matthews. You're going to hear Kornacki because he walked off the fucking set and nobody knew it. And then we hear Kornacki crying, saying goodbye to the dear leader, Chris Matthews. Let me start with my headline tonight. I'm retiring. This is the last hardball on MSNBC. And obviously, this isn't for lack of interest in politics. As you can tell, I've loved every minute of my 20 years as host of Hardball. Every morning I read the papers and I'm gung-ho to get to work. Not many people have had this privilege. I love working with my producers and the discussions we have over how to report the news. And I love having this connection with you, the good people who watch. I've learned who you are, bumping into you on the sidewalk or at waiting at an airport and saying hello. You're like me. I hear it from your kids and grandchildren who say my dad loves you or my grandmother loves you or my husband watched it till the end. Well, after a conversation with MSNBC, I decided tonight will be my last hardball. So let me tell you why. The younger generations out there are ready to take the reins. We see them in politics, in the media, in fighting for their causes. They are improving the workplace. We're talking here about better standards than we grew up with, fair standards. A lot of it has to do with how we talk to each other. Compliments on a woman's appearance that some men, including me, might have once incorrectly thought were okay. We're never okay. Not then and certainly not today. And for making such comments in the past, I'm sorry. I'm very proud of the work I've done here. Long before I went on television, I worked for years in politics, was a newspaper columnist, an author. I'm working on another book. I'll continue to write and talk about politics and cheer on my producers and crew here in Washington and New York and my MSNBC colleagues. They will continue to produce great journalism in the years ahead. And for those of you who have gotten into the habit of watching Hardball every night, I hope you're going to miss because I'm going to miss you. But remembering Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca, we'll always have Hardball. So let's not say goodbye, but till we meet again. Um, that was a lot to take in just now, I'm sure. And I'm sure you're still um, absorbing that, and, and I am too. Um, Chris Matthews is a giant. He's a legend. Um, it's been an honor for me to work with him, uh, to sit in here on occasion. Uh, and I know how much you meant to him, and I know my, how much he meant to you. And I think you're going to miss him, and I know I'm going to. Um, we're not going to have any bells or whistles here. 
We do have to fill the rest of this hour. We're going to take a quick break and come back with today's news. I know the circumstances tonight are highly unusual. I appreciate you uh, bearing with that. Uh, Jane and, and John, I also appreciate those nice words you had to say uh, about Chris there. I'm just at level with the audience at home here. Again, I know if you saw the beginning of the show, I know where your mind is. You can probably tell my mind is there as well. Like I said, we have to uh, get through the hour anyway. That's how the world works. So we are doing that. But I know where all of our thoughts are right now. So I just want to say thanks to Chris. It's almost to the day 10 years ago when I first appeared on Super Tuesday and he interviewed me. And he wanted to talk about the Latino vote. And I have to say his veracity for wanting information, his curiosity, and for giving this kid a shot. Mm -hmm. I, I will forever be grateful to him. I wish him uh, the best. And about three days ago, uh, called uh, and asked if I'd come back. Uh, and do the show tonight, and uh, this isn't <laughs> not what I was expecting, but uh, no, I'm, uh, best to him, and uh, I'm as much shock as anybody else. Absolutely. Uh, within weeks of starting at the Washington Post, uh, Chris had me on Hardball to talk about identity politics, issues related to race, and, and quite frankly, millennials as well, and so uh, it's really uh, important and valuable for him to acknowledge uh, that a generational shift has happened and that a new day has come, and wanting to provide more opportunities for uh, the next generation of politicals and journalists and media analysts who have an opportunity to tell the, st the story of where our nation is going. Um, I just as a viewer for years, I was a viewer before I was a, a guest anchor for this show, and I just he, he loved bringing new people on. I could see he loved hearing different stories and, and just trying to understand people. It's what always came through to me. Um, okay, the other thing that came through with me with Chris was he loved politics, and politics <laughs> is in the air tonight. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Let's look at this for a second, boys and girls. He has called half the conservative world Nazis. Mocked the looks of conservative women. Said fucking heinous shit about all sorts of people. And then some Bernie bro with an axe to grind says he said some inappropriate shit that's really not that inappropriate compared to what the left says you know, we should defend other people. I mean, we got pictures of fucking Al Franken with his hands over somebody's titties, and he wasn't supposed to be fired. And this motherfucker goes away like the bathwater. When I said on Twitter, I'll say again, I stand by it. This is your future, America. If Bernie Sanders becomes president, that's a communist motherfucker. You want to talk about brown shirts... The Bernie Boros are no joke. We played it on this show. They want to take people out in the street and burn them. If he doesn't win, they want to burn shit down. We heard it. So you fuck with him. This is what's going to happen to you. People are just going to go away. I mean, the conspiracy theorists think that the Clintons have fucking buried a lot of people out in the desert. You wait till Sanders becomes president. It may not be him killing the motherfuckers, but it'll damn sure be his people. So Chris Matthews, after belittling the world and saying heinous shit to all sorts of conservatives, he gets taken out by Bernie Sanders. Ain't that some shit. CNN Seltzer caught at a party with Katie Hill. Yeah. He's not happy with this, by the way. CNN host Brian Seltzer's network go out to Fox News constantly claim their host and analysts are cronies working for the president. But Seltzer has been caught in his own conflict. Reliable source host, along with two of his reporter colleagues, were seen at a party 
with disgraced former Democrat Katie Hill in New York over the weekend, according to Page Six. This after Seltzer had a has had Hill on his show and his network and has worked overtime to try to rehabilitate the Democrat. F- page 6, Ole Coleman reported Saturday that Seltzer and Oliver fucking Darcy and Vicky Ward from CNN were seen attending a book signing party for the Daily Beast Lashan Markey and Ashwang Shishibong. I don't know, it sounds like a Chinese disc. I don't know who the fucking person is. Markey and Shishibong have written a, le- a less than flattering book about the Trump administration where it's also guests on Tr- Seltzer's show. Hill was also in attendance with rumored boyfriend, Playboy reporter Alex Thomas. Last November, Stelzer and Hill on his show so he could label a victim of right-wing media spear. In the sympathetic interview, he asked her if it was an out-of-body experience to be called names by Fox personalities. Besides trying to rehab Hill's reputation... On Seltzer's show, CNN also tried to push Hill's gender discrimination narrative with puff pieces defending her on the website. Seltzer's attendance showcased just how involved the media is with the Democratic Party. Just like in 2018 when CNN host Don Lemon was seen partying with Michael Avanti, CNN journalists seem to run the same social circles as Democrats and liberal activists that they report on supposedly objectively. Revealing even more of the media's sliminess, Red State also discovered that Hill's new rumored reporter boyfriend appears to have deleted tweets that he had sent about Hill's sex scandal. Brian Seltzer. You will perhaps Seltzer and Oliver Dosi will comment on this and explain the situation, but you didn't ask for comment. What the fuck? I didn't see Katie Hill at the book party, but I did see staffers from Fox News. Is it okay that they were there? The page six story didn't say I party. You wrote that yourself. I will wait for you to update your false or strange attack. Red State. Nah, you don't get a whine about the semantics of party versus being at the same party. Especially after you falsely presented the Hill situation as a right-wing smear and trashed good reporter by James Javon Aller. Be less hypocritical. Yeah. They got problems in the media. They they just got problems. And to show Bernie's reach is no shitter, MSDNC temporarily benches Jason Johnson for hot radio race talk on Bernie. It takes a lot of effort for black commentator to be removed, even temporarily, from the liberal MSDNC channel. But a magazine editor found himself in the situation after using racial terms to hammer African-American supporters of Bernie's. Dr. Jason Johnson, a founder of the Root website, oh, goddamn, you know he's a racist, has been benched for loose talk about racist white liberals favoring Bernie Sanders and mocking supporters on the island of misfit black girls. In recent months, Johnson, a fixture in the network's Democratic primary analysis, has drawn considerable heat for his relentless anti-Sanders commentary on MSDNC, which has also come under fire from the left as a skeptical and largely negative coverage of Democratic Socialist Senator. In a serious XM radio interview, the fresh and flappable objective, Ph.D., uncorked some anger. I do find it fascinating that racist liberal whites seem to love them some Bernie Sanders consistently and always have a problem with any person of color who doesn't want to follow with the orthodoxy of their Lord and Savior. The man cares nothing for intersectionality, and I don't care how many people from the island of misfit black girls that you throw out to defend your regular basis. It didn't take long for Barbara J. Gray, National Press Secretary for Sanders' campaign, to tweet, I hope you can have a political dispute without engaging in open racism and sexism. This misogyny is disappointing, but not surprising. He's a black guy. He's a fucking black guy. (laughs) He got taken the fuck down. 
Jesus Christ. But the media is still trying. They are still trying to somehow salvage Biden. And once again, he won. But salvage Biden. He won South Carolina. Here is the view. Biden will restore our soul. Dana Bash and another, they're just moderates. I saw this last night and I started crying. And it's it's yeah. pretty long, like we just cut it. But yeah. this is Joe Biden at peak Biden. Yeah. He has this way of empathizing with pain and people. He's Joe like, Biden can stay in this lane mm-hmm. and his campaign can keep him in this lane. There's a lot of uncertainty it's, with the coronavirus and things yeah. that are going on. Yeah. A statesman who has a lot of history and a yeah. lot of record in this country, it may be something that well, people it's are in, looking for. It's interesting to me that religious people, some who are on Trump's team, mm-hmm. like evangelicals, I don't really understand how they... Don't, don't go with Biden, as opposed yeah. to somebody who slept with a porn star while his wife was having a baby. I don't get that. It's like, Can I explain it? Please. Yeah, because I've this, never understood that He has either. this line that I think is the most perfect line that he says, that it explains Trump better than any way I can. He says, they hate you, meaning the media and liberal people that judge, like, you know, redneck evangelicals in the middle of the country that people think are stupid and ignorant, whatever. And he said, I'm just in the way. Meaning, they'll come for you, and they'll come for your religion, they'll come for everything that you believe, but I'm in the way. He's that, the way I think of it's what? the best way. Of, like, of, he's in the way of leftists that want to change their life. And they It's not that, that they necessarily believe that he's, like, the greatest guy, and he's this, like, religious figure or anything like that. It's that they think that he's the person that's stopping the culture war from reaching them. It's just so bizarre to me, because if you are a person of faith, he is the antithesis of everything that you believe in right everything that is god-centered he is the antithesis of of a moral life but let me say this about joe biden because i saw that clip as well and and i thought uh joe biden was his strongest when he first announced and he had that ad campaign that said that we are struggling for the soul of this country we are fighting for the soul of this country and i believe that a man like joe biden is the person that can change um sort of the tenor of this country of what we are going through because he has that empathy you feel like empathizes with the american public and can lead you through a crisis i do think even in that moment last night joe biden you you see this character that is missing in our culture of the country there is simply too much at stake to retreat to the sidelines at a time like this we're going to have a chance to talk about Buttigieg's impact on this decision in a second, Dana. But to me, this is a side effect of what is the bigger story here, which is that the entire dynamic of this race has changed in the last 48 hours. Joe Biden's huge win in South Carolina really shakes things up. So what are you looking for? What are the stakes heading into tomorrow? They're so high uh, for Joe Biden, for uh, for Bernie Sanders, and really a big question mark about what Mike Bloomberg is going to do. Uh, what Pete Buttigieg did was try to lead the way. Uh, the, he's saying, without using these words, I'm the guy who won Iowa. I came from nowhere with a name nobody could pronounce, with no national base, with you know no national and, and natural fundraising uh, base. And look at how far I came. And yet I understand the reality of math. I don't see a path forward. And so the signal he is giving to others, including somebody with a lot of money, the deepest uh, pockets in the world, Mike Bloomberg, is, okay, guys, it's time. Let's pull back. Let's get. No, he's not actually endorsing Joe Biden. 
I can tell you that there is a lot of encouragement, uh, people begging him to do so from around Biden world, but he's making clear that it's time to consolidate. Wash, I know that you have been telling us for a couple of days now, nobody knows anything. And I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering if given these developments, you'd like to expound on that. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden became president apparently yesterday and Kamala Harris is his VP. And last week, Bernie Sanders, of course, welcomed the socialist state. And the week before that, we welcomed Mike Bloomberg's oligarchy. Uh, so nobody does know anything until after Super Tuesday. After tomorrow, a third of the delegates are going to be uh, decided. 14 states and American Samoa. But what we do know now is the the lane is narrowing, right? And Pete Buttigieg did the math, and he realized he could not win over people of color. We kept saying, you know, Karen and I have said, hey, <laughs> Iowa and New Hampshire, that's fantastic. Uh, two of the whitest states should not have that much influence on the Democratic uh, nomination. He saw Nevada. Bernie Sanders brought in the multicultural coalition, especially Hispanic voters. Guess what? Joe Biden brought in African-American voters. Jim Clyburn delivered, and now you have a race after Super Tuesday, though, it seems that realistically, looking at the math right now, Bernie Sanders is going to get a lot. Biden's going to get a lot. Bloomberg really has to make a decision here. You know, he's put in half a billion dollars. Is he going to win a state? And Elizabeth Warren has already said that she's going to go to a broker convention. Can she win her state? And then the question really is for, I think, Amy Klobuchar, because if Pete Buttigieg made this decision, strategic decision, and, you know, what's the what's the calculus right now for Amy Klobuchar? Is she going to come in and do the same thing and help, let's be honest, Joe Biden and say, I'm going to stick in. I'll win Minnesota. I've heard some people say that she's saying, hey, I'm going to protect Minnesota from Bernie Sanders. Right. And then I will drop out after Tuesday to give the edge to the, the candidate that uh, a lot of the moderates are consolidating around. We'll see after tomorrow. Until then, I will keep making wild predictions about who is the next president. <laughs> Stand by. Okay. Karen, you want to jump in here? Uh, sure. The 38-year-old former Navy officer and one of the youngest presidential candidates in modern history rose to the top of a crowded Democratic field with a moderate platform. Now, his exit helps consolidate the moderate vote and establish former Vice President Joe Biden as the main alternative to frontrunner Bernie Sanders. Are you concerned, though, that Michael Bloomberg and in your candidacy, you're appealing to the same group of voters, the same sort of moderate, centrist, pragmatist, whatever you want to call that group of voters? So they're pushing everybody's moderate, everybody's moderate, and then the bottom falls out. Everybody that could be called moderate, gone. Buttleg, Steyer, Klobuchar. You're stuck with just Warren, Sanders, and Biden. And so they do a thing where they fucking all support Biden. And here's fucking Peter Dow, who used to be a Hillary flack. Listen to this fanboy. And I have to tell you, Nicole, that um, I wasn't planning to go to Dallas tonight. He has one more event here. We were going to skip ahead to California <laughs> to be in position for Super Tuesday, where he's going to be tomorrow. Uh, but the, the, the Biden team across the board has been strongly encouraging me to join there tonight. It, it's almost like they're building an Avengers uh, sequel uh, in, in <laughs> Dallas tonight. And so uh, we're, we're interested in what's about to happen. Oh, that's some fanboy there. But the media is in trouble. Okay, they're just in trouble. They've been pushing this narrative. Now they have to coalesce. So now we go into my favorite soundbite I ever made. And really what we're at right now, the media is pushing the Dems. And they're pushing them to the left. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe in the face of the evidence 
the optimists who have been wrong in the past. Do Democrats overestimate the fear uh, by not leaning more into gun control measures? But just as important as what we are going to do this hour is what we're not going to do. We're not going to debate climate change, the existence of it. The earth is getting hotter and human activity is a major cause, period. We're not going to give time to climate deniers. The science is settled, even if political opinions. That. Whereas everyone knows that Democrats actually care about stuff, right? Bigots on the ballot are the shameful dark side of our politics right now and they are running as republicans i want to get i want to get you in on this because you know in 2000 you re- you wrote an award-winning essay. You praised Senator Sanders. You specifically praised him for embracing socialism. You have now since said that you are concerned about his policies. But I am curious about this. Are you out of touch with your own generation? Millennials, by a big chunk, embrace his version of democratic socialism. You do not. Are you out of touch with your generation? Limbaugh has lived the American dream. But at the same time, he's used his words to make a mockery of that dream, sometimes sharing xenophobic, misogynistic, and racist sentiments with the masses. This is how he chose to speak of a New York Yankee icon the day he died in 2010. Steinbrenner has passed away at age 80. That cracker made a lot of African-American millionaires. In 2011, Limbaugh decided to mock the Chinese president during his visit to the United States. Hu Jintao was just going Limbaugh attacked those who didn't share his political ideas with a fervor and harshness that stood out amongst his talk show peers. As you might know, I care deeply about stem cell research. When actor Michael J. Fox, who suffers from Parkinson's disease, did this ad for a Democratic candidate who supported stem cell research, Limbaugh pounced. This is Michael J. Fox. He's got Parkinson's disease. And in this commercial, he is exaggerating the effects of the disease. He is moving all around and shaking, and it's purely an act. After outrage over his comments, Limbaugh apologized the next day, saying, I will bigly, hugely admit that I was wrong. But he reserved a great deal of his racist comments for one man. Barack Obama, both as president and as a candidate. In 2007, as Obama campaigned on hope and change, Limbaugh debuted a racist parody of Puff the Magic Dragon, sung by a candidate for chairman of the Republican National Committee. Then Limbaugh defended his decision to air it. Every one of you out there that think you've got something here on Barack the Magic Negro, I'm going to try to help you and save you. His adoring fans believed he was saving them from liberal bias, but his critics recognized he also delivered hateful rhetoric that helped usher in a new era of extreme political polarization. We begin tonight with another test of America's ability to be shocked by Donald Trump, who has very deliberately shocked America to the point where he hopes that shock has been replaced by acceptance. The president is a Russian operative. That sounds like the description of a bad Hollywood screenplay, but it is real. 
And it is Vladimir Putin's greatest achievement. Decades after America's victory in the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the president of the United States is now helping the president of Russia help the president of the United States to get reelected so that the president of Russia will have four more years of the president of the United States who he wants in the Oval Office. This is one of those shocking news days, if you retain the capacity to be shocked in the Trump era by the Trump regime, which might be better labeled the Trump-Putin regime. And it's one of those breaking news situations that suddenly makes recent news make more sense, like the recent news that Donald Trump has outdone himself by appointing one of the most ridiculous incompetent stooges in the Trump administration to be nothing less than the acting director of national intelligence. The president gave that job to his current ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell, who intends to remain ambassador to Germany while being the acting director of national intelligence. And Richard Grinnell will be replacing Joseph McGuire, who was serving as an acting director of national intelligence. And he expected to be nominated by the president to be confirmed by Mitch McConnell's Senate as the official director of national intelligence until Vladimir Putin showed Donald Trump that he needed an even more incompetent director of national intelligence because Vladimir Putin is working hard to re-elect his favorite president of the United States in history. God bless Pete Buttigieg, but he kind of talks at the level of Mr. Rogers. And with that sort of po- like composure and poise, and he just did it up here on the stage in New Hampshire. I saw him he stumble like, just for a beat during his speech tonight, and I thought, I've never seen that. I've never seen him pause in any sort of awkward way, and he did that tonight. He's always so on. And if you go back and read the transcript of his speech, it's like he typed it out, and he has the comma and everything perfectly because he speaks in perfect sentences. It's impressive. He's an amazing human being. I mean, and like conversationally, like it's that's the one part. I'd like to get to that point where we get to know the Pete Buttigieg a little bit more. We haven't quite had. I wonder that what there is to get to know. When I was talking to his advisors, they said this is who he is. This this right here, what you see on stage, is Pete Buttigieg. There's nothing more. <laughs> speechless. But that's Von Hilliard comes is out never eventually, speechless. right? I mean, in yeah. a long campaign, don't you have to show that part of yourself eventually? Like, how long can you be would go. the TV character version of yourself? And I don't mean that mm-hmm. in a derogatory way, but... But people are looking at him as, uh, oftentimes you hear, as, especially these older voters who he's doing well with, is their son, or the person that they want their son or daughter to be friends with, or date. And I think that is the part that makes him so compelling to these people, is that he is that guy that everybody wanted their kid to be friends but young with school people with. Are- the enemy is the guy in the Oval Office who thinks there were good people on both sides of Charlottesville. Yes. The enemy is a guy in the Oval Office who just got a permission slip to cheat in presidential <laughs> elections. Yes. The enemy is a guy who called his generals dopes and losers mm-hmm. who he didn't want to go into battle with. That is the enemy. And I am nauseous when I see Democrats fight amongst themselves. And I know that Republicans get no say. I've said I'll vote for, if y'all pick an automobile, I will vote for it. But I, I feel so wary when I see these really, really intense fights around someone trying to help y'all win. Can I tell you what Republicans would do? A Republican would take Mike's money and say, help me kill Trump. Exactly. Uh, Afterwards, Nancy tore up the speech in two. And what does this really say about the State of the Union? 
You know? What does it really say about the State of the Union? You know, she talked. She's playing hardball like he does. They, you know, when they go low, we go lower. That's what. That's the only thing. That's the only thing that works with these criminals and fascists who are running the country right now. Sorry, but that's what works. You didn't really need to have a fact checker. All you had to do was watch Nancy's face, because every time he lied, she went either like this or like this or, or like that, and you saw that he was. Every time he opened his mouth, practically he was lying. Well, and that, that's why she said I, she was. She commented right after uh, the State of the Union address. You know, when she was asked why did you rip it up, she said because it was just filled with lies, filled with mistruths, and I, I think that was sort of her gut reaction uh, to do that. And what, what are we talking about? Rather than talking about, let's say, his speech, we're talking about uh, Nancy about ripping it up. Hard to put how unusual this was uh, from the Speaker of the House ending by uh, pointedly ripping up the text of the speech to the President here engaging for the second time the Chief Justice who is sitting as judge at his impeachment trial, which continues tomorrow. To the Republican chant of four more years prior to the start of the speech. The dark parts were dark, the bizarre parts were bizarre, down to the awarding of the Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh by the First Lady during the speech, which at so many points differed from the truth. There were a few dramatic moments um, beyond just the bizarreness signing the tie here would be one of them um, but the awarding of the presidential medal of freedom to talk radio host Rush Limbaugh not only announcing that he would receive it but instead of doing it in the East Room with a ceremony and the president awarding it having the president's wife the first lady pin it on right there in the audience was just a, was was an unusual well I think it goes right to the heart of um, what has been the problem of Democrat strategy and that is to say that they're going to go hard after voters um, that they lost in 2016. Um, trying to go and cut into the Republican base is not a good strategy. What is a good strategy is to realize that what's gone is gone and to buckle down and get the people who have long been your va base and that is black and brown voters. That is newer voters, young voters, registering new folks, ensuring that folks who have been disenfranchised and are returning citizens can vote. But to try to go and turn Trump voters who, as we just saw in the last segment with your hypothetical ask to Scott, is highly problematic. Mor morals be damned. Um, that is not what drives um, Donald Trump's voting base. It is um, bigotry. It is fear. It is um, judges who have lifetime appointments that may be pro-life, but they want to kill off everyone else. Um, there are civil rights. Um, Folks, they want to ensure the death penalty continues to exist. All of these other things that fly in the face of morality and what I believe is a social justice gospel, which is the one of, for the God that I serve, who is also Jesus Christ. How many of your uh, friends uh, out there, April Ryan, are, are feeling the suggestion? <laughs> uh, not. Zero. Goose egg. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, if there was a chance for that... The State of the Union really turned a lot of people off. Right. One, the main issue, and, and, and don't get me wrong, we never wish any ill on anyone who is sick or dying or has cancer. But for him in front of the nation to pander for black votes and then give Rush Limbaugh the highest medal a president can give, this big Rush Limbaugh is a bigot. Rush Limbaugh Absolutely. is racist. Rush Limbaugh was a birther.
And for him to do that, and, and he could have given not only uh, gold stars to the Tuskegee Airmen, he could have also given him that 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 Presidential Medal of Freedom. Yeah. This president goes from Charlottesville to to s whole nations to giving the Medal of Freedom to the whole world to see to Rush Limbaugh. That is a big contradiction. That's hypocrisy. The black vote is too precious, and there is a lot to lose and a lot at stake at this moment. And you have been watching the president of the United States with an unscripted, vindictive, at times profane, angry, rambling response to his impeachment acquittal. First off, just the tone, the vindictive nature of his going through clearly almost an enemies list. It was vindictive, as you pointed out. It was full of revenge. It was mean-spirited. It was poisonous. It was spiteful. And it, it gave you a real look into the way he views the world. Here, this was just a, a long and, and rambling uh, speech. I, I, you know, as, as I was watching it, I was like, this is sort of like a, a session you would have with your therapist, right, where you're just on the couch and you're kind of uh, talking about all of the internal emotions that you're having. I might argue it's more of a dear diary, or certainly you're not getting your money's worth because a therapist might interject in the right, middle of that. Right, and this right, was yeah. more of like a, this was just a yeah. monologue. Look, this was a very disturbing uh, tableau for the country. Um, it was dark because he's made clear that his mind is dark. This is somebody in deep psychological distress right now, self-pitying, insecure, angry. He doesn't recognize abstract concepts like right and wrong. Acquittal, acquitted doesn't mean you didn't commit a crime. Three words, O.J. Simpson. <laughs> this is coming out of my ear. Oh, oh I'm crazy. Is that your earpiece? I'm crazy today. He's made me crazy this week. I mean, I'm really getting, he's winning because yeah. I'm getting nuttier and nuttier. Uh, yesterday was a, an example of, of insanity. For me, he's now not only president local, he is impeached president local. Yeah. The, the pressure that was over an hour at the White House, surrounded by these Republicans that looked at him the way my five-pound poodle looks at me when she wants a treat. You know, yeah. oh, please say my name, say my name. And this, this, uh, this pathetic Republican uh, group yesterday at that meeting, Mark yeah. Meadows... I mean, I, I heard John earlier say he's not going to express how appalled he was because he's done it so often, but I'm going to express how appalled I was today <laughs> by it. I mean, I, and I couldn't help but think these senators sitting in the room and listening to him rail on like this. And by the way, people, voters should be forced to listen to an entire Trump press conference because then I think it's impossible to vote for him. But they've got to be sitting there and thinking, what a poor excuse for a president. What a poor excuse for a man. Why doesn't our generation vote in large numbers? It's a great question. I think that it's because, first of all, millennial turnout did double in the 2018 midterms from 2014. So it's certainly going in the right direction. But one reason is that Barack Obama was such a transformative figure for people, and he was, for many people our age, their first president that they really got behind. And he made voting into an act of love. So I don't think that millennials think of voting as their duty. They think of it as something that they only do for somebody that they really care about and really believe in. And that makes it really hard for somebody like a Michael Bloomberg. This is throwing a nut in their ranch. Where are they going to go now? Because their narrative has been so... Biden, Sanders, Biden, Sanders. That's why I played it. I know it was long, but it's just fucking insane. Here's some of the sound bites you heard. Hidden lifted candidates from the left in 2000. You specifically praised Bernie Sanders for embracing socialism. You now since said you're concerned about his policies. That was 
Chuck Todd to Pete Buttleg. Chuck Todd again. Mayor Bloomberg, should you exit? I have a soundbite from fucking Mojo now that is totally the opposite. They are literally, they one day they said he should get out, and then they heard these people are going to start dropping, and so now they're fucking gaga for him. Um, Telemundo correspondent Vanessa Hook to former Vice President Joe Biden. You said that you want to hold oil and gas executives accountable for the role in harming our planet. You have even suggested that you might put them in jail. What would you do with these companies that are responsible for the destruction of the planet? Von Hillier to MSNBC live coverage in New Hampshire. Um, Mayor Pete is amazing. God bless Mayor Pete, but he kind of talks at the level of Mr. Rogers. And with that composure and poise, and he just did it up there on stage in New Hampshire, he speaks in perfect sentences. It's impressive. He's an amazing human being. And now he's not running. Lawrence O'Donnell, Russian hoax redux. The president is a Russian operative. Chris Matthews, no longer a host. It's all happening again. Russia has endorsed the re-election of President Trump. (laughs) Um, Gloria Borger, appalled by Donald's insecure, viperous, vindictive victory speech. It was vindictive. It was mean-spirited. It was poisonous. It was spiteful. Brianna Keller, I was struck by just what a dark place this was in this speech. This was so dark. John Harward, this is a very disturbing tableau for the country. Time editor, former Barack Obama administration official, Richard Stingle, going to express how appalled I was by voters should be forced to listen to entire Trump press conference because then I think it's impossible to vote for him. And it just goes on and on. But they're stuck with the shitty fucking candidate. All right. He, he just can't get ahead. Peter Dow, we heard earlier, this is his tweet now. If you want to defeat Trump and you're fighting to stop Bernie, if you're in the party leadership and fighting to stop Bernie, if you're mainstream pundit and fighting to stop Bernie, you're out of step with the majority of Democratic voters. That's not, that, that's not the case. Because it's still split. Here's the breakdown after the 55th fucking debate. Sanders 34, Biden 25, Bloomberg 15, Warren 11. Everybody else gave up. They're gone. And people started saying to him, 34 is now a majority? No. No, it's not. People people literally don't want to deal with it. And I'll tell you right now. One of the reasons Amy Klobuchar is gone, and I have actual videos of people turning their back on Bloomberg, was Amy Klobuchar got attacked by Black Lives Matter. It's not very good. So, there's our uh, dim stuff. And I'd like to close on Biden before we go to our next podcast, because it's pretty good. Thao Ning, our very own Nicopoli 5, was called out by Biden in his town hall in Conway, South Carolina. Biden asking anyone to benefit from the Trump tax cut. This is how Biden replied. By the way, how many of you did really well with that $1.9 trillion tax cut that increased... 
Real in good shape, right? Really changed your, well, you did. Well, that's good. You might, I'm glad to see you're doing well already. And I'm good, but guess what? If you elect me, I'm not going to have you, your taxes are going to be raised, not cut. If you're, if you benefit from that. Yeah, that's going to get people to vote. We're going to, I'm going to raise your fucking taxes. I thought that already happened, Joe. That's what you guys said. Trump's taking your money. When he wasn't, we had that whole thing last year. Remember that? And then he got caught in a lie. So here's Biden too. He said he was arrested during the Mandela time. It's a total fucking lie. Um, I do want to ask you about one thing that you've said repeatedly on the trail. I think it's three times now. You said that during a visit to South Africa uh, to visit Nelson Mandela, which I know is a very memorable visit for you, that you were arrested when you were there. Your campaign has come out since and said, no, no, no. You were separated from other people at the airport, but you did say arrest three yeah. times. What? Why? Well, what I meant to say was I, I got off that. Look, I, I strongly, strongly, strongly opposed the tarp apartheid. I was one of the leaders. And if you doubt it, go on JoeBiden.com and look at the exchange between George Schultz and me and the Foreign Relations Committee. And here's the deal. I was with a black delegation, the CDC, the, the, the Congressional Black Caucus. They had me get off a plane. The Afrikaners got on in their short pants and their guns, let me off for, led me off first and moved me in a direction totally different. I turned around and everybody, all the entire black delegation was going another way. I said, I'm not going to go in that door that says white only. I'm going with them. I said, you're not. You can't move. You can't go with them. And they, and they kept me there until finally I decided they were clear I wasn't going to move. And so what they finally did, they said, okay, they're not going to make the congressional delegation go through the black door. They're not going to make me go through the white door. They went, took us up, my memory serves me through a baggage claim area up to a restaurant and they cleared out a restaurant. I felt strongly about apartheid. One of the reasons we were there. And after, long after this, when Nelson Mandela was freed and came to the United States, he came to my office. He was one of the most incredible men I ever met. He sat down in my office, thanked me, thanked me for trying to all the work I did on apartheid. And so that's that's the context of it. When I okay. said arrested, I meant I was not able to I was not able to move. Cops, Afrikaners would not let me go with them, made me stay where I was. I guess I, I wasn't arrested. I was stopped. I was not able to move where I wanted to go. So I do have one question. When this is all said and done, this whole campaign, if Donald Trump is reelected as president of the United States, what will it tell you about America? Well, it would tell me that uh, we're in real trouble. Yeah, Joe, you're you're in big trouble. He's lying. Warren, who's lied about her ethnicity, about her school, about getting fired, her kids going to school, I meant. Well, she swore she never. Well, let's just read it. Democratic primary should belong to grassroots supporters and grassroots donors, not the rich or powerful. Every Democrat candidate should agree. Super PACs have no place in our primary. Warren's Super PAC plunges $9 million into Super Tuesday. Warren likely now is the biggest Super PAC of the cycle, or at least close to it. Today, Persist PAC placed $9 million into buys, expanding our investment in Super Tuesday states. San Francisco, Los Angeles, California, uh, San Diego, Bakersfield, Santa Barbara, Monterey, Dallas, Texas, Houston, and Boston. So, yeah. She's a liar, too. So, There's our segment one of this podcast. We're going to go out without the usual 
music, we're going to go out with the intro to our next podcast. We have something to listen to at the end of this podcast. And it is our College Crazy segment. Students at CPAC share experiences as conservatives on campus, which is never good. And Campus Reform Reporter says Syracuse is purposely targeting her. This is the third one we talked about, that they're trying to silence students on campuses that are reporting the negative shit happening to conservatives and the crazy liberal show that's going on. So once again, go ahead and download part B of this podcast, and we'll go right into another soundbite, which will be a Trump supporter getting a tackled at Virginia College. I shit you fucking not, because he was there with a flag. And I have not found out why they tackled the poor guy. So once again, download part B. I'll see you there. Hi, I'm Eduardo Norette with Campus Reform. Today we're at CPAC talking to students about their experience being conservatives on college campuses. Have you ever lost a friend as a student for some of the political views you have? I actually have, to be honest. There was uh, someone who I actually went on a few dates with, and she got very upset because I was lean conservative, and I actually was a Trump supporter. I like Donald Trump, and they don't, and uh, unfortunately, uh, it happened recently, and it's very sad. Yeah, so during my junior to senior year, I was beginning to lose a lot of friends because of my political views, because I was starting to finally come into them. Uh, If that's the reason we can't be friends, then you have lost all civility. I have lost a few friends over my political views. The more active I was on Twitter, and it's not like I was saying anything uh, controversial or anything, it was just mainstream conservative views. As soon as I started doing that and then becoming more confident in them, I began to lose my friends and they would just one one by one drop me out of the group. Once they found out that I was pro-Trump, they would just be like, how could you, how dare you, like, I hope you, whatever. Somebody told me to burn in hell as a Trump supporter, and I was like, that's great, you know? It makes you, first off, it makes you question tolerance. It makes you question, is the Democratic Party what they say they are in terms of social justice and tolerance? person leaves you and yeah, stops talking because of your political views, uh, they're not really a friend at all, so. Unfortunately, it seems these days, politics is really driving people apart. What's the craziest form of progressive liberal bias you've seen on your campus? Well, I mean, the uh, chair of our econ department, my major, uh, he's an open Marxist. Um, you know, he preaches you know, the Communist Manifesto throughout the day. I have followed a girl on campus who sells cheesecakes, and she saw that I had hashtag Trump 2020 in my Twitter bio, and she didn't like that very much, so she blocked me and um, labeled me as a racist on her Twitter, and it blew up and went viral. I had death threats, I was attacked on social media and then people talked about me on campus and it was just like a big thing it was more so globalism being pushed down our throats in our history and our global history classes it was all the subliminal messaging that came with the education our uh, students for life chapter um, was holding an event called lies feminist tell Um, they had posters about it all over campus um, flyers they hung up everywhere um, and most of them lasted less than 30 minutes they were all torn down our student government vice president once posted on the 4th of july death to america on her personal social media i was in bio and um, my teacher for whatever reason my professor decided to talk about how we needed free health care in bio class and it really made no sense because we're talking about you know just basic biology you know science and then she goes right into why we need medicare for all a lot of conservatives in the older generations want to help change the culture on campus they want to help you know change the climate on campus but what is one thing you wish other conservatives knew 
about the campus. What is something that they could do to help you guys change the culture of liberal bias on campus? <laughs> that we exist. Uh, there's a lot of people, especially at uh, our school, that uh, I feel are sheltered because they're afraid that something's going to happen to them if they speak their mind. I would say they need to encourage them to go against the university a lot more because I think students don't know how much they can get away with at, at, at these universities. Case in point, University of Florida, the AF chapter, we, we sue them because they, they, you know, First Amendment violations. About donating to college campuses, a lot of conservatives need to stop, you know, giving their money, alumni need to stop giving their money back to the colleges because they're not using it for things that benefit both sides of the political spectrum. America's youth are the key to the future, you know, because listen, a lot of people will say, well, you know, you're young, can't have much to say. That is true. I can't make a living. But guess what? You make a living off what you get. You make a life off of what you give. And if I'm willing to attend an event such as this, or am I willing to change a voter's mind, that is a lot to give. I came into college as a freshman uh, two or three years, two years ago. Um, and I was just really afraid to speak my values, be myself. Um, and I wish I would have had that older student to kind of be the person to tell me it's okay to be who I am. Uh, I'd like to see more, you know, conservatives, uh, older conservatives come and speak to college students. I believe the greatest thing we can do is to ask, is to be able to send speakers to high school and college campuses. Hi, I'm Edward Henrette with Campus Reform. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a great interview with one of our correspondents, Justine Brooke-Murray. She's a Campus Reform correspondent out of Syracuse University, and she's joining us here today to kind of share an interesting story that, that she has received on campus, some backlash she's experienced for some of the reporting that she's done for us. So, Justine, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so walk the, the viewer through what's gone on. I mean, I know you've done a lot of great reporting for us at Campus Reform, and you basically brought to our attention um, some feedback, some pretty nasty feedback you had been getting from a professor. Uh, he called you a disruptor, um, so, sort of went after you on social media for some of the reporting you've done for us. So kind of walk us through where this started, why it started, um, even, you know, what story sort of prompted him to react like this. This professor has been a professor of mine since freshman year and then again sophomore year. And this year, although he's not teaching one of my classes, he's still in charge of my major. So when I report on my stories, sometimes I'll get, or a lot of times I'll get Facebook notifications, but I found out that this professor was actually posting about not just my stories, but about me in general on his public Facebook page. And I realized this almost a year ago, but I didn't think much of it because after all, uh, it was just the professor posting about my article. Everybody has the right to their own opinions. But then it started, it started from campus reform articles, but it launched into when I met President Trump and I stood next to him during the free speech executive order, he posted an image of me with him on an article uh, with some nasty words, just a he said, like, ugh. And in the comments section, some professors were, some professors and some non-professors uh, were saying, oh, I know her. I know Justine. She's a right-wing agitator. And I saw that this professor was liking their comments. But it really got to the point where just last week, 
this hasn't happened before, but I woke up to a notification from my professor on Facebook. He shared one of my posts asking a question during the Republican versus Democratic debate on campus, and he wrote in the headline, here you go. And I didn't know what he meant, but I looked down, and his previous post was, quote, we have some pro-Trump disruptors on campus. Now, I don't know how this professor could have found my Facebook without him actively searching for me. I never sought him out on Facebook or interacted with him or liked or friended him. So he must have just searched me. It, it started with the articles and now this professor is actually tagging me online to his friends, to his followers to go and harass me. Well, and you made a great point. You know, at Campus Reform, we report on things that professors say, that administrators say, but, you know, it's very straight reporting. There's no opinion in there. We never call for, you know, anyone to be fired. We believe in, in both professor and student rights to free speech, but it seems this professor has re- really has a problem, as you mentioned, with, with some of the things you do on campus. Um, so l- let me be clear. W- were you ever a student in his class? I was. I was a student twice in his class. And when you were in his classroom, um, was did that overlap with the time frame that you reported for campus reform? And if so, um, or if not, you know, d- d- was he aware of your other activism on campus? Uh, and did he ever really take out his disagreements with you in the form of grading or in the classroom? Or, or did his kind of uh, targeting of you online occur sort of after you were his student? His targeting online occurred a little bit after. It was the semester after he taught me. Um, During classrooms, um, during class discussions, he would start arguments with me. He would teach that all right-wing views or all just right-of-center views are right-wing conspiracy theories. And I would question him during classes, and he would get irritated when I questioned him, um, even though he gave the opportunity for students to ask questions. He never graded me unfairly, which, um, you know, that's right. I, I was happy about that. Um, so I didn't really think much of it again, even when he started posting about me online because I felt, well, he has a right to his opinion. But then he started tagging me. And although he's not actively teaching one of my classes, he's still in charge of the major I'm in. He runs the major. And I'm I'm still a student at the university. I'm not graduating until next year. He's still a professor. And it's not right. So as you mentioned earlier, you know, the latest development was his comments on uh, a question you had posed at a recent campus deba- debate. Now, my understanding is that you've sort of taken this to another level. You've kind of now wanted to report uh, to a higher office on campus what he's been doing to you. So tell us a little bit about that. And also, if you've ever, you know, reached out to him, you know, privately or, or you know, maybe in person to say, hey, professor, you know, I know you disagree with me. I know we have our disagreements, but, could, you know, could you please stop doing this on social media or, or could you please stop, uh, you know, tagging me in posts? Have you done that at all? And then again, if you could just walk us through how you've reported this to to a higher office on campus. So I reported this to um, my Title VI counselor, a counselor I already have. I've already been assigned after another professor physically approached me and grabbed me by the shoulder last year, threatening me, telling me to watch out, saying that she knows who I am, even though I might not know who she is. So uh, investigations have already 
been going on about professors harassing me. And this is the second professor who I had to report. Um, the title, the, the Title VI department, they basically reached out to me again and said, no, we're sorry you're going through this. Um, just puff words. They asked me what was the context of my professor posting about me online as if, you know, there might be some justification sure. for why he's targeting me. Um, they asked me for a link to one of the articles that I wrote for Campus Reform back in the fall as this professor posted about it. And there he smeared me once again. And he had a conversation with his followers in the comments where another person said, oh, um, Rupert, Rupert's this professor's name, I happened to find her Facebook page. I happened to have creeped on her Facebook page. And this professor just went along with it. Um, so, so far, nothing's really happening. The Title VI department um, did not reach out to me other um, than with that response um, regarding this professor who targeted me online. I haven't gone up to this professor in person to confront him about it. Um, I wanted to you know, talk. I wanted to talk with my family first, to be honest, because my family's concerned. My parents are, of course, as parents, a little bit paranoid about my safety, and they have every right to be. But um, last semester, I do remember this professor coming up to me during a meeting and whispering in my ear, "Are you going to write about this?" You know, menacingly, and you know it's it's startling. I got caught off sure. guard. Well, you you alluded to it uh, a little bit in your last answer, but the next question I was going to ask you is, how has this made you feel? Has have you felt that um, you know maybe going forward you kind of have to hesitate and, and rethink some of your activism, reconsider whether you will participate in activism? I mean, you you seem to be resilient in that, and and in the fact that you will continue to be a conservative on campus despite the fact that you have received this pushback from professors and whatnot. But overall, how has it made you feel? I mean, what have, what have your friends said? Uh, are people, you know, sympathetic to you on campus? Even maybe some students who you know who maybe don't agree with you politically. I mean, are you hearing that from other people that this is really inappropriate and, and something that shouldn't be tolerated? A few people have spoken to me privately. A couple of students sometimes approach me in the hallways or in the library um, saying, hey, you know, thank you for what you're doing. But these students are afraid to speak up. Someone reported to me that they actually lost their roommate because they said that they knew me and they defended me when I was mobbed at a protest I was covering back in November. Um, and that comes with the bad. So we have, there are a few people on campus who have expressed support, who you know, tell me to hang in there. But I get nervous walking around on campus now because often I'll get approached by people who aren't so friendly. Someone on, uh, on the school bus a few weeks ago, I overheard them in the background saying, oh, that's that girl again. Uh, she exploits people at protests. Um, I'll go confront her and I'll call you when it's done. And this person was talking to one of his friends. So that was scary for me because um, at that point, I actually tried to miss my stop because I was worried that this person would follow me back to my campus apartment. And, you know, I had to speak to um, my Title VI counselor about that. Um, 
In regards to being afraid to continue my activism and reporting on campus, I feel that if I stop now and if I let myself um, be fearful because of these incidents, then the people who want to shut conservative students down, they will win. And I'm not here to let that happen. Um, until I graduate, I'm going to be here on campus. I'm going to continue exposing biases because I really want to set an example for other conservative students and incoming students, not just at Syracuse, but on college campuses across the country, that they don't have to be afraid anymore just because they hold different beliefs. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm sorry you've had to go through this, Justine. I have two more questions for you. Number one, why do you think professors are doing this? Why do you think professors feel empowered, emboldened, um, and not only empowered, emboldened, but why do you feel like they are going after conservative students such as yourself? I mean, especially, you know, the professor you mentioned who you didn't even know who they were, and they, they went up to you and grabbed you and, and sort of gave you this eerie, creepy, uh, you know, comment saying that they knew who you were. Why do you think they're doing that? And then going forward, um, what is your hope out of what will come out of the Title VI process? I mean, if you, if you could paint the perfect scenario about how this gets resolved, um, what do you hope to see and, and what do you hope that the university does? Professors, especially tenured professors, are doing this. They feel like they're able to intimidate students with different beliefs because no one's stopping them. No one has come up to them yet and said, hey, uh, you know, this isn't okay. And when we do report it to Title VI departments or departments of diversity and inclusion on campus, these professors know that nothing will happen because usually nothing happens. If this happened to a liberal student or a student of a certain race or ethnicity, then, of course, the whole campus would uh, go in a complete uproar, in a, in a complete protest, and you would hear about this all over the mainstream media, just like you did with the recent racist and bigoted incidents that have occurred on our campus. So these professors are actually getting empowered and they feel empowered to intimidate students because nobody, no one's putting a stop to this. Um, in regards to what I hope I can get out of this and um, possibly resolve the situations with the professors who have threatened me, um, the Title VI department before with the professor who grabbed me by the shoulder said that they'll have a meeting with me, her, and her higher-ups. And I don't know whether, I, I don't know what this university, uh, whether they should sanction these professors or, but they need to do something to get out the point that you can't threaten students, even if they disagree with you. And I hope the professors who have threatened me will get that in their brains. Well, keep us posted, Justine. Let us know what happens. Uh, update us on any things that the university has done, anything that's happened in your process, and definitely if you experience more targeting 